This is Audible. Recorded Books presents an unabridged recording of Journey to East Lan, The Lessons of Don Juan, by Carlos Castaneda, narrated by Luis Moreno. Introduction On Saturday, May 22, 1971, I went to Sonora, Mexico, to see Don Juan Matus, a Yaqui Indian sorcerer with whom I had been associated since 1961. I thought that my visit on that day was going to be in no way different from the scores of times I had gone to see him in the ten years I had been his apprentice. The events that took place on that day and on the following days, however, were momentous to me. On that occasion, my apprenticeship came to an end. This was not an arbitrary withdrawal on my part but a bona fide termination. I've already presented the case of my apprenticeship in two previous works, The Teachings of Don Juan and A Separate Reality. My basic assumption in both books has been that the articulation points in learning to be a sorcerer were the states of non-ordinary reality produced by the ingestion of psychotropic plants. In this respect, Don Juan was an expert in the use of three such plants, Datura inoxia, commonly known as jimson weed, Lophophora williamsii, known as peyote, and a hallucinogenic mushroom of the genus Psilocybe. My perception of the world through the effects of those psychotropics had been so bizarre and impressive that I was forced to assume that such states were the only avenue to communicating and learning what Don Juan was attempting to teach me. That assumption was erroneous. For the purpose of avoiding any misunderstandings about my work with Don Juan, I would like to clarify the following issues at this point. So far, I have made no attempt whatsoever to place Don Juan in a cultural milieu. The fact that he considers himself to be a Yaqui Indian doesn't mean that his knowledge of sorcery is known to or practiced by the Yaqui Indians in general. All the conversations that Don Juan and I have had throughout the apprenticeship were conducted in Spanish, and only because of his thorough command of the language was I capable of obtaining complex explanations of his system of beliefs. I've maintained the practice of referring to that system as sorcery, and I've also maintained the practice of referring to Don Juan as a sorcerer, because these were categories he himself used. Since I was capable of writing down most of what he said in the beginning of the apprenticeship and everything that was said in the later phases of it, I gathered voluminous field notes. In order to render those notes readable and still preserve the dramatic unity of Don Juan's teachings, I've had to edit them, but what I've deleted is, I believe, immaterial to the points I want to raise. In the case of my work with Don Juan, I've limited my efforts solely to viewing him as a sorcerer and to acquiring membership in his knowledge. For the purpose of presenting my argument, I must first explain the basic premise of sorcery as Don Juan presented it to me. He said that for a sorcerer, the world of everyday life is not real or out there, as we believe it is. For a sorcerer, reality 
or the world we all know, is only a description. For the sake of validating this premise, Don Juan concentrated the best of his efforts into leading me to a genuine conviction that what I held in mind as the world at hand was merely a description of the world, a description that had been pounded into me from the moment I was born. He pointed out that everyone who comes into contact with a child is a teacher who incessantly describes the world to him, until the moment when the child is capable of perceiving the world as it is described. According to Don Juan, we have no memory of that portentous moment, simply because none of us could possibly have had any point of reference to compare it to anything else. From that moment on, however, the child is a member. He knows the description of the world, and his membership becomes full-fledged, I suppose, when he is capable of making all the proper perceptual interpretations, which, by conforming to that description, validate it. For Don Juan, then, the reality of our day-to-day -day life consists of an endless flow of perceptual interpretations, which we, the individuals who share a specific membership, have learned to make in common. The idea that the perceptual interpretations that make up the world have a flow is congruous with the fact that they run uninterruptedly and are rarely, if ever, open to question. In fact, the reality of the world we know is so taken for granted that the basic premise of sorcery, that our reality is merely one of many descriptions, could hardly be taken as a serious proposition. Fortunately, in the case of my apprenticeship, Don Juan was not concerned at all with whether or not I could take his proposition seriously, and he proceeded to elucidate his points in spite of my opposition, my disbelief, and my inability to understand what he was saying. Thus, as a teacher of sorcery, Don Juan endeavored to describe the world to me from the very first time we talked. My difficulty in grasping his concepts and methods stemmed from the fact that the units of his description were alien and incompatible with those of my own. His contention was that he was teaching me how to see, as opposed to merely looking, and that stopping the world was the first step to seeing. For years I had treated the idea of stopping the world as a cryptic metaphor that really didn't mean anything. It was only during an informal conversation that took place towards the end of my apprenticeship that I came to fully realize its scope and importance as one of the main propositions of Don Juan's knowledge. Don Juan and I had been talking about different things in a relaxed and unstructured manner. I told him about a friend of mine and his dilemma with his nine-year-old son. The child, who'd been living with the mother for the past four years, was then living with my friend, and the problem was what to do with him. According to my friend, the child was a misfit in school. He lacked concentration and wasn't interested in anything. He was given to tantrums, disruptive behavior, and to running away from home. Your friend certainly does have a problem. Don Juan said, laughing. 
I wanted to keep on telling him all the terrible things the child had done, but he interrupted me. There's no need to say any more about that poor little boy, he said. There's no need for you or for me to regard his actions in our thoughts one way or another. His manner was abrupt, and his tone was firm, but then he smiled. What can my friend do? I asked. The worst thing he could do is to force the child to agree with him, Don Juan said. What do you mean? I mean that that child shouldn't be spanked or scared by his father when he doesn't behave the way he wants him to. How can he teach him anything if he isn't firm with him? Your friend should let someone else spank the child. He can't let anyone else touch his little boy, I said, surprised at his suggestion. Don Juan seemed to enjoy my reaction and giggled. Your friend is not a warrior, he said. If he were, he would know that the worst thing one can do is to confront human beings bluntly. What does a warrior do, Don Juan? A warrior proceeds strategically. I still don't understand what you mean. I mean that if your friend were a warrior, he would help his child to stop the world. How can my friend do that? He would need personal power. He would need to be a sorcerer. But he isn't. In that case, he must use ordinary means to help his son to change his idea of the world. It's not stopping the world, but it'll work just the same. I asked him to explain his statements. If I were your friend, Don Juan said, I would start by hiring someone to spank the little guy. I would go to Skid Row and hire the worst-looking man I could find. To scare a little boy? Not just to scare a little boy, you fool. That little fellow must be stopped, and being beaten by his father won't do it. If one wants to stop our fellow men, one must always be outside the circle that presses them. That way, one can always direct the pressure. The idea was preposterous, but somehow it was appealing to me. Don Juan was resting his chin on his left palm. His left arm was propped against his chest on a wooden box that served as a low table. His eyes were closed, but his eyeballs moved. I felt he was looking at me through his eyelids. The thought scared me. Tell me more about what my friend should do with his little boy, I said. Tell him to go to Skid Row, and very carefully select an ugly-looking derelict, he went on. Tell him to get a young one, one who still has some strength left in him. Don Juan then delineated a strange strategy. I was to instruct my friend to have the man follow him, or wait for him at a place where he would go with his son— the man, in response to a prearranged cue to be given after any objectionable behavior on the part of the child, was supposed to leap from a hiding place, pick the child up, and spank the living daylights out of him. After the man scares him, your friend must help the little boy regain his confidence in any way he can. If he follows this procedure three or four times, I assure you, 
that that child will feel differently towards everything. He will change his idea of the world. What if the fright injures him? Fright never injures anyone. What injures the spirit is having someone always on your back, beating you, telling you what to do and what not to do. When that boy is more contained, you must tell your friend to do one last thing for him. He must find some way to get to a dead child, perhaps in a hospital or at the office of a doctor. He must take his son there and show the dead child to him. He must let him touch the corpse once with his left hand on any place except the corpse's belly. After the boy does that, he'll be renewed. The world will never be the same for him. I realized then that throughout the years of our association, Don Juan had been employing with me, although on a different scale, the same tactics he was suggesting my friend should use with his son. I asked him about it. He said that he'd been trying all along to teach me how to stop the world. You haven't yet, he said, smiling. Nothing seems to work, because you're very stubborn. If you were less stubborn, however, by now you'd probably have stopped the world with any of the techniques I've taught you. What techniques, Don Juan? Everything I have told you to do was a technique for stopping the world. A few months after that conversation, Don Juan accomplished what he had set out to do, to teach me to stop the world. That monumental event in my life compelled me to re-examine in detail my work of ten years. It became evident to me that my original assumption about the role of psychotropic plants was erroneous. They weren't the essential feature of the sorcerer's description of the world, but were only an aid to cement, so to speak, parts of the description which I'd been incapable of perceiving otherwise. My insistence on holding on to my standard version of reality rendered me almost deaf and blind to Don Juan's aims. Therefore, it was simply my lack of sensitivity which had fostered their use. In reviewing the totality of my field notes, I became aware that Don Juan had given me the bulk of the new description at the very beginning of our association, in what he called Techniques for Stopping the World. I had discarded those parts of my field notes in my earlier works, because they didn't pertain to the use of psychotropic plants. I have now rightfully reinstated them in the total scope of Don Juan's teachings, and they comprise the first seventeen chapters of this work. The last three chapters are the field notes covering the events that culminated in my stopping the world. In summing up, I can say that when I began the apprenticeship, there was another reality. That is to say, there was a sorcery description of the world, which I didn't know. Don Juan, as a sorcerer and a teacher, taught me that description. The ten-year apprenticeship I've undergone consisted, therefore, in setting up that unknown reality by unfolding its description, adding increasingly more complex parts as I went along. 
The termination of the apprenticeship meant that I had learned a new description of the world in a convincing and authentic manner, and thus I'd become capable of eliciting a new perception of the world, which matched its new description. In other words, I had gained membership. Don Juan stated that in order to arrive at seeing, one first had to stop the world. Stopping the world was indeed an appropriate rendition of certain states of awareness in which the reality of everyday life is altered because the flow of interpretation, which ordinarily runs uninterruptedly, has been stopped by a set of circumstances alien to that flow. In my case, the set of circumstances alien to my normal flow of interpretations was the sorcery description of the world. Don Juan's precondition for stopping the world was that one had to be convinced. In other words, one had to learn the new description in a total sense, for the purpose of pitting it against the old one, and in that way break the dogmatic certainty which we all share that the validity of our perceptions or our reality of the world is not to be questioned. After stopping the world, the next step was seeing. By that, Don Juan meant what I would like to categorize as responding to the perceptual solicitations of a world outside the description we have learned to call reality. My contention is that all these steps can only be understood in terms of the description to which they belong, and since it was a description that he endeavored to give me from the beginning, I must then let his teachings be the only source of entrance into it. Thus, I have left Don Juan's words to speak for themselves. Carlos Castaneda, 1972 Journey to Istlan The Lessons of Don Juan Part 1 Stopping the World 1. Reaffirmations from the World Around Us I understand you know a great deal about plants, sir, I said to the old Indian in front of me. A friend of mine had just put us in contact and left the room, and we had introduced ourselves to each other. The old man had told me that his name was Juan Matus. Did your friend tell you that? he asked casually. Yes, he did. I pick plants. Or rather, they let me pick them, he said softly. We were in the waiting room of a bus depot in Arizona. I asked him in very formal Spanish if he would allow me to question him. I said, Would the gentleman, caballero, permit me to ask some questions? Caballero, which is derived from the word caballo, or horse, originally meant horseman or a nobleman on horseback. He looked at me inquisitively. I'm a horseman without a horse, he said with a big smile. And then he added, I've told you that my name is Juan Matus. I liked his smile. I thought that, obviously, he was a man that could appreciate directness, and I decided to boldly tackle him with a request. I told him I was interested in collecting and studying medicinal plants. I said that my special interest 
was the uses of the hallucinogenic cactus, peyote, which I had studied at length at the university in Los Angeles. I thought that my presentation was very serious. I was very contained and sounded perfectly credible to myself. The old man shook his head slowly, and I, encouraged by his silence, added that it would no doubt be profitable for us to get together and talk about peyote. It was at that moment that he lifted his head and looked me squarely in the eyes. It was a formidable look. Yet it wasn't menacing or awesome in any way. It was a look that went through me. I became tongue-tied at once and couldn't continue with the harangues about myself. That was the end of our meeting. Yet he left on a note of hope. He said that perhaps I could visit him at his house someday. It would be difficult to assess the impact of Don Juan's look if my inventory of experience is not somehow brought to bear on the uniqueness of that event. When I began to study anthropology and thus met Don Juan, I was already an expert in getting around. I had left my home years before, and that meant in my evaluation that I was capable of taking care of myself. Whenever I was rebuffed, I could usually cajole my way in or make concessions, argue, get angry, or, if nothing succeeded, I would whine or complain. In other words, there was always something I knew I could do under the circumstances— and never in my life had any human being stopped my momentum so swiftly and so definitely as Don Juan did that afternoon. But it wasn't only a matter of being silenced. There had been times when I'd been unable to say a word to my opponent because of some inherent respect I felt for him. Still, my anger or frustration was manifested in my thoughts. Don Juan's look, however numbed me to the point that I couldn't think coherently. I became thoroughly intrigued with that stupendous look and decided to search for him. I prepared myself for six months after that first meeting, reading up on the uses of peyote among the American Indians, especially about the peyote cult of the Indians of the Plains. I became acquainted with every work available, and when I felt I was ready, I went back to Arizona. Saturday, December 17th, 1960. I found his house after making long and taxing inquiries among the local Indians. It was early afternoon when I arrived and parked in front of it. I saw him sitting on a wooden milk crate. He seemed to recognize me and greeted me as I got out of my car. We exchanged social courtesies for a while, and then, in plain terms, I confessed that I'd been very devious with him the first time we'd met. I'd boasted that I knew a great deal about peyote, when in reality I knew nothing about it. He stared at me. His eyes were very kind. I told him that for six months I'd been reading to prepare myself for our meeting, and that this time I really knew a great deal more. He laughed. Obviously, there was something in my statement which was funny to him. He was laughing at me, and I felt a bit confused and offended. He apparently noticed my discomfort and assured me that, although I had had good intentions, 
There was really no way to prepare myself for our meeting. I wondered if it would have been proper to ask whether that statement had any hidden meaning, but I didn't. Yet he seemed to be attuned to my feelings, and proceeded to explain what he had meant. He said that my endeavors reminded him of a story about some people a certain king had persecuted and killed once upon a time. He said that in the story the persecuted people were indistinguishable from their persecutors, except that they insisted on pronouncing certain words in a peculiar manner proper only to them. That flaw, of course, was the giveaway. The king posted roadblocks at critical points where an official would ask every man passing by to pronounce a key word. Those who could pronounce it the way the king pronounced it would live, but those who couldn't were immediately put to death. The point of the story was that one day a young man decided to prepare himself for passing the roadblock by learning to pronounce the test word just as the king liked it. Don Juan said with a broad smile that in fact it took the young man six months to master such a pronunciation, and then came the day of the great test. The young man very confidently came upon the roadblock and waited for the official to ask him to pronounce the word. At that point, Don Juan very dramatically stopped his recounting and looked at me. His pause was very studied and seemed a bit corny to me, but I played along. I'd heard the theme of the story before. It had to do with Jews in Germany and the way one could tell who was a Jew by the way they pronounced certain words. I also knew the punchline: the young man was going to get caught because the official had forgotten the key word, and asked him to pronounce another word which was very similar, but which the young man had not learned to say correctly. Don Juan seemed to be waiting for me to ask what happened, so I did. What happened to him? I asked, trying to sound naive and interested in the story. The young man. Who was truly foxy? He said, realized that the official had forgotten the key word, and before the man could say anything else, he confessed that he had prepared himself for six months. He made another pause and looked at me with a mischievous glint in his eyes. This time, he had turned the tables on me. The young man's confession was a new element, and I no longer knew how the story would end. Well. What happened then? I asked, truly interested. The young man was killed instantly, of course, he said, and broke into a roaring laughter. I liked very much the way he'd entrapped my interest. Above all, I liked the way he had linked that story to my own case. In fact, he seemed to have constructed it to fit me. He was making fun of me. In a very subtle and artistic manner, I laughed with him. Afterwards, I told him that no matter how stupid I sounded, I was really interested in learning something about plants. I like to walk a great deal, he said. I thought he was deliberately changing the topic of conversation to avoid answering me. I didn't want to antagonize him with my insistence. He asked me if I wanted to go with him on a short hike in the desert. I eagerly told him that I would love to walk in the desert. This is no picnic, 
he said, in a tone of warning. I told him that I wanted very seriously to work with him. I said that I needed information, any kind of information, on the uses of medicinal herbs, and that I was willing to pay him for his time and effort. You'll be working for me, I said, and I'll pay you wages. How much would you pay me? he asked. I detected a note of greed in his voice. Whatever you think is appropriate, I said. Pay me for my time with your time, he said. I thought he was a most peculiar fellow. I told him I didn't understand what he meant. He replied that there was nothing to say about plants. Thus, to take my money would be unthinkable for him. He looked at me piercingly. What are you doing in your pocket? he asked, frowning. Are you playing with your wanger? He was referring to my taking notes on a minute pad inside the enormous pockets of my windbreaker. When I told him what I was doing, he laughed heartily. I said that I didn't want to disturb him by writing in front of him. If you want to write, write, he said. You don't disturb me. We hiked in the surrounding desert until it was almost dark. He didn't show me any plants, nor did he talk about them at all. We stopped for a moment to rest by some large bushes. Plants are very peculiar things, he said, without looking at me. They are alive, and they feel. At the very moment he made that statement, a strong gust of wind shook the desert chaparral around us. The bushes made a rattling noise. Do you hear that? he asked me, putting his right hand to his ear as if he were aiding his hearing. The leaves and the wind are agreeing with me. I laughed. The friend who had put us in contact had already told me to watch out because the old man was very eccentric. I thought the agreement with the leaves was one of his eccentricities. We walked for a while longer, but he still didn't show me any plants, nor did he pick any of them. He simply breezed through the bushes, touching them gently. Then he came to a halt and sat down on a rock and told me to rest and look around. I insisted on talking. Once more, I let him know that I wanted very much to learn about plants, especially peyote. I pleaded with him to become my informant in exchange for some sort of monetary reward. You don't have to pay me, he said. You can ask me anything you want. I'll tell you what I know, and then I'll tell you what to do with it. He asked me if I agreed with the arrangement. I was delighted. Then he added a cryptic statement. Perhaps there's nothing to learn about plants, because there's nothing to say about them. I didn't understand what he'd said, or what he'd meant by it. What did you say? I asked. He repeated the statement three times, and then the whole area was shaken by the roar of an Air Force jet flying low. There! The world has just agreed with me, he said, putting his left hand to his ear.
I found him very amusing. His laughter was contagious. Are you from Arizona, Don Juan? I asked, in an effort to keep the conversation centered around his being my informant. He looked at me and nodded affirmatively. His eyes seemed to be tired. I could see the white underneath his pupils. Were you born in this locality? He nodded his head again without answering me. It seemed to be an affirmative gesture, but it also seemed to be the nervous headshake of a person who's thinking. And where are you from, yourself? he asked. I come from South America, I said. That's a big place. Do you come from all of it? His eyes were piercing again as he looked at me. I began to explain the circumstances of my birth, but he interrupted me. We're alike in this respect, he said. I live here now, but I'm really a yaki from Sonora. Is that so? I myself come from... He didn't let me finish. I know, I know, he said. You are who you are, from wherever you are, as I am a yaki from Sonora. His eyes were very shiny, and his laughter was strangely unsettling. He made me feel as if he'd caught me in a lie. I experienced a peculiar sensation of guilt. I had the feeling he knew something I didn't know, or didn't want to tell. My strange embarrassment grew. He must have noticed it, for he stood up and asked me if I wanted to go eat in a restaurant in town. Walking back to his home and then driving into town made me feel better, but I wasn't quite relaxed. I somehow felt threatened, although I couldn't pinpoint the reason. I wanted to buy him some beer in the restaurant. He said that he never drank, not even beer. I laughed to myself. I didn't believe him. The friend who had put us in contact had told me that the old man was plastered out of his mind most of the time. I really didn't mind if he was lying to me about not drinking. I liked him. There was something very soothing about his person. I must have had a look of doubt on my face, for he then went on to explain that he used to drink in his youth, but that one day he simply dropped it. People hardly ever realize that we can cut anything from our lives, any time, just like that. He snapped his fingers. Do you think that one can stop smoking or drinking that easily? I asked. Sure, he said with great conviction. Smoking and drinking are nothing, nothing at all, if we want to drop them. At that very moment, the water that was boiling in the coffee percolator made a loud perking sound. Hear that? Don Juan exclaimed with a shine in his eyes. The boiling water agrees with me. Then he added after a pause, A man can get agreements from everything around him. At that crucial instant, the coffee percolator made a truly obscene gurgling sound. He looked at the percolator and softly said, Thank you, nodded his head, and then broke into a roaring laughter. I was taken aback. His laughter was a bit too loud, but I was genuinely amused by it all. My first real session with my informant ended then. He said goodbye at the door of the restaurant. I told him I had to visit some friends and that I would like to see him again at the end of the following week. 
When will you be home? I asked. He scrutinized me. Whenever you come, he replied. I don't know exactly when I can come. Just come then, and don't worry. What if you're not in? I'll be there, he said, smiling, and walked away. I ran after him and asked him if he would mind my bringing a camera with me to take pictures of him in his house. That's out of the question, he said with a frown. How about a tape recorder? Would you mind that? I'm afraid there's no possibility of that either. I became annoyed and began to fret. I said I saw no logical reason for his refusal. Don Juan shook his head negatively. Forget it he said forcefully, and if you still want to see me, don't ever mention it again. I staged a weak final complaint. I said that pictures and recordings were indispensable to my work. He said that there was only one thing which was indispensable for anything we did. He called it the spirit. One can't do without the spirit, he said, and you don't have it. Worry about that and not about pictures. What do you... He interrupted me with a movement of his hand and walked backwards a few steps. Be sure to come back, he said softly and waved goodbye. 2. Erasing Personal History Thursday, December 22, 1960 Don Juan was sitting on the floor by the door of his house, with his back against the wall. He turned over a wooden milk crate and asked me to sit down and make myself at home. I offered him some cigarettes. I had brought a carton of them. He said he didn't smoke, but he accepted the gift. We talked about the coldness of the desert nights and other ordinary topics of conversation. I asked him if I was interfering with his normal routine— he looked at me with a sort of frown and said he had no routines and that I could stay with him all afternoon if I wanted to. I'd prepared some genealogy and kinship charts that I wanted to fill out with his help. I'd also compiled from the ethnographic literature a long list of culture traits that were purported to belong to the Indians of the area. I wanted to go through the list with him and mark all the items that were familiar to him. I began with the kinship charts. What did you call your father? I asked. I called him Dad, he said with a very serious face. I felt a little bit annoyed, but I proceeded on the assumption that he hadn't understood. I showed him the chart and explained that one space was for the father and another space was for the mother. I gave as an example the different words used in English and in Spanish for father and mother. I thought that perhaps I should have taken mother first. What did you call your mother? I asked. I called her mom, he replied in a naive tone. I mean, what other words did you use to call your father and mother? How did you call them? I said, trying to be patient and polite. He scratched his head and looked at me with a stupid expression. Golly, he said, you got me there. Let me think. After a moment's hesitation, he seemed to remember something, and I got ready to write. Well, 
he said, as if he were involved in serious thought. How else did I call them? I called them... Hey, hey, Dad! Hey, hey, Mom! I laughed against my desire. His expression was truly comical, and at that moment I didn't know whether he was a preposterous old man pulling my leg or whether he was really a simpleton. Using all the patience I had, I explained to him that these were very serious questions, and that it was very important for my work to fill out the forms. I tried to make him understand the idea of a genealogy and personal history. What were the names of your father and mother? I asked. He looked at me with clear, kind eyes. Don't waste your time with that crap, he said softly, but with unsuspected force. I didn't know what to say. It was as if someone else had uttered those words. A moment before, he had been a fumbling, stupid Indian scratching his head, and then, in an instant, he'd reversed the roles. I was the stupid one, and he was staring at me with an indescribable look that wasn't a look of arrogance or defiance or hatred or contempt. His eyes were kind and clear and penetrating. I don't have any personal history, he said after a long pause. One day, I found out that personal history was no longer necessary for me, and like drinking, I dropped it. I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. I suddenly felt ill at ease, threatened. I reminded him that he'd assured me that it was all right to ask him questions. He reiterated that he didn't mind at all. I don't have personal history anymore, he said, and looked at me probingly. I dropped it one day, when I felt it was no longer necessary. I stared at him, trying to detect the hidden meanings of his words. How can one drop one's personal history? I asked in an argumentative mood. One must first have the desire to drop it he said, and then one must proceed harmoniously to chop it off, little by little. Why should anyone have such a desire? I exclaimed. I had a terribly strong attachment to my personal history. My family roots were deep. I honestly felt that without them, my life had no continuity or purpose. Perhaps you should tell me what you mean by dropping one's personal history. I said. To do away with it, that's what I mean, he replied cuttingly. I insisted that I mustn't have understood the proposition. Take you, for instance, I said. You are a yaki. You can't change that. Am I? he asked, smiling. How do you know that? True. I said, I can't know that with certainty at this point, but you know it, and that's what counts. That's what makes it personal history. I felt I'd driven a hard nail in. The fact that I know whether I'm a yaki or not doesn't make it personal history, he replied. Only when someone else knows that. Does it become personal history? And I assure you that no one will ever know that for sure.
I'd written down what he'd said in a clumsy way. I stopped writing and looked at him. I couldn't figure him out. I mentally ran through my impressions of him. The mysterious and unprecedented way he'd looked at me during our first meeting, the charm with which he'd claimed that he received agreement from everything around him, his annoying humor and his alertness, his look of bona fide stupidity when I asked about his father and mother, and then the unsuspected force of his statements which had snapped me apart. You don't know what I am, do you? he said, as if he were reading my thoughts. You will never know who or what I am, because I don't have a personal history. He asked me if I had a father. I told him I did. He said that my father was an example of what he had in mind. He urged me to remember what my father thought of me. Your father knows everything about you, he said. So he has you all figured out. He knows who you are and what you do, and there's no power on earth that can make him change his mind about you. Don Juan said that everybody that knew me had an idea about me, and that I kept feeding the idea with everything I did. Don't you see? he asked dramatically. You must renew your personal history— by telling your parents, your relatives, and your friends everything you do. On the other hand, if you have no personal history, no explanations are needed. Nobody is angry or disillusioned with your acts, and above all, no one pins you down with their thoughts. Suddenly, the idea became clear in my mind. I'd almost known it myself, but I'd never examined it. Not having personal history was indeed an appealing concept, at least on the intellectual level. It gave me, however, a sense of loneliness, which I found threatening and distasteful. I wanted to discuss my feelings with him, but I kept myself in check. Something was terribly incongruous in the situation at hand. I felt ridiculous trying to get into a philosophical argument with an old Indian who obviously didn't have the sophistication of a university student. Somehow, he had led me away from my original intention of asking him about his genealogy. I don't know how we ended up talking about this, when all I wanted was some names for my charts— I said, trying to steer the conversation back to the topic I wanted. It's terribly simple, he said. The way we ended up talking about it was because I said that to ask questions about one's past is a bunch of crap. His tone was firm. I felt there was no way to make him budge, so I changed my tactics. Is this idea of not having personal history something that the yuckies do? I asked. It's something that I do. Where did you learn it? I learned it during the course of my life. Did your father teach you that? No. Let's say that I learned it by myself, and now I'm going to give you its secret so you won't go away empty-handed today. He lowered his voice to a dramatic whisper. I laughed at his histrionics, 
I had to admit that he was stupendous at that. The thought crossed my mind that I was in the presence of a born actor. Write it down, he said patronizingly. Why not? You seem to be more comfortable writing. I looked at him, and my eyes must have betrayed my confusion. He slapped his thighs and laughed with great delight. It's best to erase all personal history, he said slowly, as if giving me time to write it down in my clumsy way, because that would make us free from the encumbering thoughts of other people. I couldn't believe that he was actually saying that. I had a very confusing moment. He must have read in my face my inner turmoil and used it immediately. Take yourself, for instance, he went on saying. Right now, you don't know whether you're coming or going. And that is so because I have erased my personal history. I have little by little created a fog around me and my life. And now, nobody knows for sure who I am or what I do. You yourself know who you are, don't you? I interjected. You bet I don't, he exclaimed, and rolled on the floor, laughing at my surprised look. He'd paused long enough to make me believe that he was going to say that he did know, as I was anticipating it. His subterfuge was very threatening to me. I actually became afraid. That is the little secret I'm going to give you today, he said in a low voice. Nobody knows my personal history. Nobody knows who I am or what I do. Not even I. He squinted his eyes. He wasn't looking at me, but beyond me, over my right shoulder. He was sitting cross-legged, his back was straight, and yet he seemed to be so relaxed. At that moment, he was the very picture of fierceness. I fancied him to be an Indian chief, a red-skinned warrior in the romantic frontier sagas of my childhood. My romanticism carried me away, and the most insidious feeling of ambivalence enveloped me. I could sincerely say that I liked him a great deal, and in the same breath, I could say that I was deadly afraid of him. He maintained that strange stare for a long moment. How can I know who I am when I am all this? He said, sweeping the surroundings with a gesture of his head. Then he glanced at me and smiled. Little by little, you must create a fog around yourself. You must erase everything around you until nothing can be taken for granted, until nothing is any longer for sure or real. Your problem now is that you're too real. Your endeavors are too real. Your moods are too real. Don't take things so for granted. You must begin to erase yourself. What for? I asked belligerently. It became clear to me then that he was prescribing behavior for me. All my life, I'd reached a breaking point when someone attempted to tell me what to do. The mere thought of being told what to do put me immediately on the defensive. 
You said that you wanted to learn about plants, he said calmly. Do you want to get something for nothing? What do you think this is? We agreed that you would ask me questions, and I'd tell you what I know. If you don't like it, there's nothing else we can say to each other. His terrible directness made me feel peeved, and begrudgingly, I conceded that he was right. Let's put it this way, then, he went on. If you want to learn about plants, since there's really nothing to say about them, you must, among other things, erase your personal history. How? I asked. Begin with simple things, such as not revealing what you really do. Then you must leave everyone who knows you well. This way, you'll build up a fog around yourself. But that's absurd, I protested. Why shouldn't people know me? What's wrong with that? What's wrong is that once they know you, you're an affair take it for granted, and from that moment on, you won't be able to break the tie of their thoughts. I personally like the ultimate freedom of being unknown. No one knows me with steadfast certainty the way people know you, for instance. But that would be lying. I'm not concerned with lies or truths, he said severely. Lies are lies only if you have personal history. I argued that I didn't like to deliberately mystify people or mislead them. His reply was that I misled everybody anyway. The old man had touched a sore spot in my life. I didn't pause to ask him what he meant by that or how he knew that I mystified people all the time. I simply reacted to his statement, defending myself by means of an explanation. I said that I was painfully aware that my family and friends believed I was unreliable, when in reality I had never told a lie in my life. You always knew how to lie, he said. The only thing that was missing was that you didn't know why to do it. Now you do. I protested. Don't you see that I'm really sick and tired of people thinking that I'm unreliable? I said. But you are unreliable, he replied with conviction. Damn it to hell, man, I am not, I exclaimed. My mood, instead of forcing him into seriousness, made him laugh hysterically. I really despised the old man for all his cockiness, Unfortunately, he was right about me. After a while, I calmed down, and he continued talking. When one doesn't have personal history, he explained, nothing that one says can be taken for a lie. Your trouble is that you have to explain everything to everybody, compulsively, and at the same time, you want to keep the freshness, the newness of what you do. Well, since you can't be excited after explaining everything you've done, you lie in order to keep on going. I was truly bewildered by the scope of our conversation. I wrote down all the details of our exchange in the best way I could, concentrating on what he was saying, rather than pausing to deliberate on my prejudices or on his meanings. From now on, he said, 
You must simply show people whatever you care to show them, but without ever telling exactly how you've done it. I can't keep secrets, I exclaimed. What you're saying is useless to me. Then change, he said cuttingly and with a fierce glint in his eyes. He looked like a strange, wild animal, and yet he was so coherent in his thoughts and so verbal. My annoyance gave way to a state of irritating confusion. You see, he went on, we only have two alternatives. We either take everything for sure and real, or we don't. If we follow the first, we end up bored to death with ourselves and with the world. If we follow the second and erase personal history, we create a fog around us, a very exciting and mysterious state in which nobody knows where the rabbit will pop out, not even ourselves. I contended that erasing personal history would only increase our sensation of insecurity. When nothing is for sure, we remain alert, perennially on our toes, he said. It's more exciting not to know which bush the rabbit is hiding behind than to behave as though we know everything. He didn't say another word for a very long time. Perhaps an hour went by in complete silence. I didn't know what to ask. Finally, he got up and asked me to drive him to the nearby town. I didn't know why, but our conversation had drained me. I felt like going to sleep. He asked me to stop on the way and told me that if I wanted to relax, I had to climb to the flat top of a small hill on the side of the road and lie down on my stomach with my head towards the east. He seemed to have a feeling of urgency. I didn't want to argue, or perhaps I was too tired to even speak. I climbed the hill and did as he had prescribed. I slept only two or three minutes, but it was sufficient to have my energy renewed. We drove to the center of town, where he told me to let him off. Come back, he said as he stepped out of the car. Be sure to come back. 3. Losing Self-Importance I had the opportunity of discussing my two previous visits to Don Juan with the friend who had put us in contact. It was his opinion that I was wasting my time. I related to him in every detail the scope of our conversation. He thought I was exaggerating and romanticizing a silly old fogey. There was very little room in me for romanticizing such a preposterous old man. I sincerely felt that his criticism about my personality had seriously undermined my liking him. Yet I had to admit that they had always been apropos, sharply delineated, and true to the letter. The crux of my dilemma at that point was my unwillingness to accept that Don Juan was very capable of disrupting all my preconceptions about the world, and my unwillingness to agree with my friend, who believed that the old Indian was just nuts. I felt compelled to pay him another visit before I made up my mind. Wednesday, December 28, 1960. Immediately after I arrived at his house, 
he took me for a walk in the desert chaparral. He didn't even look at the bag of groceries that I brought him. He seemed to have been waiting for me. We walked for hours. He didn't collect or show me any plants. He did, however, teach me an appropriate form of walking. He said that I had to curl my fingers gently as I walked, so I would keep my attention on the trail and the surroundings. He claimed that my ordinary way of walking was debilitating, and that one should never carry anything in the hands. If things had to be carried, one should use a knapsack or any sort of carrying net or shoulder bag. His idea was that by forcing the hands into a specific position, one was capable of greater stamina and greater awareness. I saw no point in arguing and curled my fingers as he had prescribed and kept on walking. My awareness was in no way different, nor was my stamina. We started our hike in the morning and we stopped to rest around noon. I was perspiring and tried to drink from my canteen, but he stopped me by saying that it was better to have only a sip of water. He cut some leaves from a small yellowish bush and chewed them. He gave me some and remarked that they were excellent, and if I chewed them slowly, my thirst would vanish. It didn't, but I wasn't uncomfortable either. He seemed to have read my thoughts and explained that I hadn't felt the benefits of the right way of walking, or the benefits of chewing the leaves, because I was young and strong, and my body didn't notice anything, because it was a bit stupid. He laughed. I wasn't in a laughing mood, and that seemed to amuse him even more. He corrected his previous statement, saying that my body wasn't really stupid, but somehow dormant. At that moment, an enormous crow flew right over us, cawing. That startled me, and I began to laugh. I thought that the occasion called for laughter. But to my utter amazement, he shook my arm vigorously and hushed me up. He had a most serious expression. That wasn't a joke, he said severely, as if I knew what he was talking about. I asked for an explanation. I told him that it was incongruous that my laughing at the crow had made him angry when we had laughed at the coffee percolator. What you saw was not just a crow, he exclaimed. But I saw it, and it was a crow, I insisted. You saw nothing, you fool he said in a gruff voice. His rudeness was uncalled for. I told him that I didn't like to make people angry and that perhaps it would be better if I left, since he didn't seem to be in a mood to have company. He laughed uproariously, as if I were a clown performing for him. My annoyance and embarrassment grew in proportion. You're very violent, he commented casually. You're taking yourself too seriously. But weren't you doing the same? I interjected. Taking yourself seriously when you got angry at me? He said that to get angry at me was the farthest thing from his mind. He looked at me piercingly. What you saw was not an agreement from the world, he said. Crows flying or cawing are never an agreement. That was an omen. An omen of what? A very important indication about you, he replied cryptically. At that very instant, the wind blew the dry branch of a bush right to our feet. 
That was an agreement, he exclaimed, and looked at me with shiny eyes and broke into a belly laugh. I had the feeling that he was teasing me by making up the rules of his strange game as we went along. Thus, it was all right for him to laugh, but not for me. My annoyance mushroomed again, and I told him what I thought of him. He wasn't cross or offended at all. He laughed, and his laughter caused me even more anguish and frustration. I thought that he was deliberately humiliating me. I decided right then that I had had my fill of field work. I stood up and said that I wanted to start walking back to his house because I had to leave for Los Angeles. Sit down, he said imperatively. You get peeved like an old lady. You can't leave now, because we're not through yet. I hated him. I thought he was a contemptuous man. He began to sing an idiotic Mexican folk song. He was obviously imitating some popular singer. He elongated certain syllables and contracted others and made the song into a most farcical affair. It was so comical that I ended up laughing. You see? You laugh at the stupid song, he said. But the man who sings it that way and those who pay to listen to him aren't laughing. They think it's serious. What do you mean? I asked. I thought he'd deliberately concocted the example to tell me that I'd laughed at the crow because I hadn't taken it seriously, the same way I hadn't taken the song seriously. But he baffled me again. He said I was like the singer and the people who liked his songs, conceited and deadly serious about some nonsense that no one in his right mind should give a damn about. He then recapitulated, as if to refresh my memory, all he had said before on the topic of learning about plants. He stressed emphatically that if I really wanted to learn, I had to remodel most of my behavior. My sense of annoyance grew until I had to make a supreme effort to even take notes. You take yourself too seriously, he said slowly. You're too damn important in your own mind. That must be changed. You're so goddamn important that you feel justified to be annoyed with everything. You're so damn important that you can afford to leave if things don't go your way. I suppose you think that shows you have character. That's nonsense. You're weak and conceited. I tried to stage a protest but he didn't budge. He pointed out that in the course of my life I hadn't ever finished anything because of that sense of disproportionate importance that I attached to myself. I was flabbergasted at the certainty with which he made his statements. They were true, of course, and that made me feel not only angry, but also threatened. Self-importance is another thing that must be dropped. Just like personal history, he said in a dramatic tone. I certainly didn't want to argue with him. It was obvious that I was at a terrible disadvantage. He wasn't going to walk back to his house until he was ready, and I didn't know the way. I had to stay with him. He made a strange and sudden movement. He sort of sniffed the air around him. His head shook slightly and rhythmically. He seemed to be in a state of unusual alertness. 
He turned and stared at me with a look of bewilderment and curiosity. His eyes swept up and down my body as if he were looking for something specific. Then he stood up abruptly and began to walk fast. He was almost running. I followed him. He kept a very accelerated pace for nearly an hour. Finally, he stopped by a rocky hill, and we sat in the shade of a bush. The trotting had exhausted me completely, although my mood was better. It was strange, the way I had changed. I felt almost elated. But when we had started to trot after our argument, I was furious with him. This is very weird, I said, but I feel really good. I heard the cawing of a crow in the distance. He lifted his finger to his right ear and smiled. That was an omen, he said. A small rock tumbled downhill and made a crashing sound when it landed in the chaparral. He laughed out loud and pointed his finger to the direction of the sound. And that was an agreement, he said. He then asked me, if I was ready to talk about my self-importance. I laughed. My feeling of anger seemed so far away that I couldn't even conceive how I'd become so cross with him. I can't understand what's happening to me, I said. I got angry, and now I don't know why I'm not angry anymore. The world around us is very mysterious, he said. It doesn't yield its secrets easily. I liked his cryptic statements. They were challenging and mysterious. I couldn't determine whether they were filled with hidden meanings or whether they were just plain nonsense. If you ever come back to the desert here, he said, stay away from that rocky hill where we stopped today. Avoid it like the plague. Why, what's the matter? This isn't the time to explain it, he said. Now. We are concerned with losing self-importance. As long as you feel that you're the most important thing in the world, you can't really appreciate the world around you. You're like a horse with blinders. All you see is yourself, apart from everything else. He examined me for a moment. I'm going to talk to my little friend here, he said, pointing to a small plant. He kneeled in front of it and began to caress it and to talk to it. I didn't understand what he was saying at first, but then he switched languages and talked to the plant in Spanish. He babbled inanities for a while. Then he stood up. It doesn't matter what you say to a plant, he said. You can just as well make up words. What's important is the feeling of liking it and treating it as an equal. He explained that a man who gathers plants must apologize every time for taking them and must assure them that someday his own body will serve as food for them. So, all in all, the plants and ourselves are even, he said. Neither we nor they are more or less important. Come on, talk to the little plant, he urged me. Tell it that you don't feel important anymore. I went as far as kneeling in front of the plant, but I couldn't bring myself to speak to it. I felt ridiculous and laughed. I wasn't angry, however. Don Juan patted me on the back and said that it was all right, 
that at least I'd contained my temper. From now on, talk to the little plants, he said. Talk until you lose all sense of importance. Talk to them until you can do it in front of others. Go to those hills over there and practice by yourself. I asked if it was all right to talk to the plants silently, in my mind. He laughed and tapped my head. No, he said. You must talk to them in a loud and clear voice if you want them to answer you. I walked to the area in question, laughing to myself about his eccentricities. I even tried to talk to the plants, but my feeling of being ludicrous was overpowering. After what I thought was an appropriate wait, I went back to where Don Juan was. I had the certainty that he knew I hadn't talked to the plants. He didn't look at me. He signaled me to sit down by him. Watch me carefully, he said. I'm going to have a talk with my little friend. He kneeled down in front of a small plant, and for a few minutes he moved and contorted his body, talking and laughing. I thought he was out of his mind. This little plant told me to tell you that she is good to eat, he said as he got up from his kneeling position. She said that a handful of them would keep a man healthy. She also said that there's a batch of them growing over there. Don Juan pointed to an area on a hillside perhaps two hundred yards away. Let's go and find out, he said. I laughed at his histrionics. I was sure we would find the plants because he was an expert in the terrain and knew where the edible and medicinal plants were. As we walked towards the area in question, he told me casually that I should take notice of the plant, because it was both a food and a medicine. I asked him, half in jest, if the plant had just told him that. He stopped walking and examined me with an air of disbelief. He shook his head from side to side. Ah! he exclaimed, laughing. Your cleverness makes you more silly than I thought. How can the little plant tell me now what I've known all my life? He proceeded then to explain that he knew all along the different properties of that specific plant, and that the plant had just told him that there was a batch of them growing in the area he'd pointed to, and that she didn't mind if he told me that. Upon arriving at the hillside, I found a whole cluster of the same plants. I wanted to laugh, but he didn't give me time. He wanted me to thank the batch of plants. I felt excruciatingly self-conscious and couldn't bring myself to do it. He smiled benevolently and made another of his cryptic statements. He repeated it three or four times, as if to give me time to figure out its meaning. The world around us is a mystery, he said. And men are no better than anything else. If a little plant is generous with us, we must thank her. Or perhaps she will not let us go. The way he looked at me when he said that gave me a chill. I hurriedly leaned over the plants and said, Thank you, in a loud voice. He began to laugh in controlled and quiet spurts. We walked for another hour and then started on our way back to his house. At a certain time, I dropped behind and he had to wait for me. 
He checked my fingers to see if I had curled them. I had not. He told me imperatively that whenever I walked with him, I had to observe and copy his mannerisms or not come along at all. I can't be waiting for you as though you're a child, he said in a scolding tone. That statement sunk me into the depths of embarrassment and bewilderment. How could it be possible that such an old man could walk so much better than I? I thought I was athletic and strong, and yet he had actually had to wait for me to catch up with him. I curled my fingers, and strangely enough, I was able to keep his tremendous pace without any effort. In fact, at times, I felt that my hands were pulling me forward. I felt elated. I was quite happy walking inanely with the strange old Indian. I began to talk and asked repeatedly if he would show me some peyote plants. He looked at me, but didn't say a word. 4. Death is an Advisor Wednesday, January 25th, 1961 Would you teach me some day about peyote? I asked. He didn't answer, and as he had done before, simply looked at me as if I were crazy. I had mentioned the topic to him in casual conversation various times already, and every time he frowned and shook his head. It wasn't an affirmative or a negative gesture. It was rather a gesture of despair and disbelief. He stood up abruptly. We'd been sitting on the ground in front of his house. An almost imperceptible shake of his head was the invitation to follow him. We went into the desert chaparral in a southerly direction. He mentioned repeatedly as we walked that I had to be aware of the uselessness of my self-importance and of my personal history. Your friends, he said, turning to me abruptly. Those who have known you for a long time, you must leave them quickly. I thought he was crazy, and his insistence was idiotic, but I didn't say anything. He peered at me and began to laugh. After a long hike, we came to a halt. I was about to sit down to rest, but he told me to go some twenty yards away and talk to a batch of plants in a loud and clear voice. I felt ill at ease and apprehensive. His weird demands were more than I could bear, and I told him once more that I couldn't speak to plants because I felt ridiculous. His only comment was that my feeling of self-importance was immense. He seemed to have made a sudden decision and said that I shouldn't try to talk to plants until I felt easy and natural about it. You want to learn about them. And yet you don't want to do any work, he said accusingly. What are you trying to do? My explanation was that I wanted bona fide information about the uses of plants. Thus, I'd asked him to be my informant. I'd even offered to pay him for his time and trouble. You should take the money, I said. This way we both would feel better. I could then ask you anything I want to, because you would be working for me, and I would pay you for it. What do you think of that? He looked at me contemptuously and made an obscene sound with his mouth, making his lower lip and his tongue vibrate by exhaling with great force. That's what I think of it, he said, and laughed hysterically at the look of utmost surprise that I must have had on my face.
It was obvious to me that he wasn't a man I could easily contend with. In spite of his age, he was ebullient and unbelievably strong. I had had the idea that, being so old, he could have been the perfect informant for me. Old people, I had been led to believe, made the best informants because they were too feeble to do anything else except talk. Don Juan, on the other hand, was a miserable subject. I felt he was unmanageable and dangerous. The friend who had introduced us was right. He was an eccentric old Indian, and although he wasn't plastered out of his mind most of the time, as my friend had told me, he was worse yet. He was crazy. I again felt the terrible doubt and apprehension I had experienced before. I thought I had overcome that. In fact, I had had no trouble at all convincing myself that I wanted to visit him again. The idea had crept into my mind, however, that perhaps I was a bit crazy myself when I realized that I liked to be with him. His idea that my feeling of self-importance was an obstacle had really made an impact on me. But all that was apparently only an intellectual exercise on my part. The moment I was confronted with his odd behavior, I began to experience apprehension, and I wanted to leave. I said that I believed we were so different that there was no possibility of our getting along. One of us has to change, he said, staring at the ground. And you know who. He began humming a Mexican folk song, and then lifted his head abruptly and looked at me. His eyes were fierce and burning. I wanted to look away or close my eyes, but to my utter amazement I couldn't break away from his gaze. He asked me to tell him what I had seen in his eyes. I said that I saw nothing, but he insisted that I had to voice what his eyes had made me feel aware of. I struggled to make him understand that the only thing his eyes made me aware of was my embarrassment and that the way he was looking at me was very discomforting. He didn't let go. He kept a steady stare. It wasn't an outright menacing or mean look. It was rather a mysterious but unpleasant gaze. He asked me if he reminded me of a bird. A bird? I exclaimed. He giggled like a child and moved his eyes away from me. Yes, he said softly. A bird. A very funny bird. He locked his gaze on me again and commanded me to remember. He said with an extraordinary conviction that he knew I had seen that look before. My feelings of the moment were that the old man provoked me against my honest desire every time he opened his mouth. I stared back at him in obvious defiance. Instead of getting angry, he began to laugh. He slapped his thigh and yelled as if he were riding a wild horse. Then he became serious and told me that it was of utmost importance that I stop fighting him and remember that funny bird he was talking about. Look into my eyes, he said. His eyes were extraordinarily fierce. There was a feeling about them that actually reminded me of something, but I wasn't sure what it was. I pondered upon it for a moment, and then I had a sudden realization. It wasn't the shape of his eyes, nor the shape of his head. 
but some cold fierceness in his gaze that had reminded me of the look in the eyes of a falcon. At the very moment of that realization, he was looking at me askew, and for an instant my mind experienced a total chaos. I thought I had seen a falcon's features instead of Don Juan's. The image was too fleeting, and I was too upset to have paid more attention to it. In a very excited tone, I told him that I could have sworn I had seen the features of a falcon on his face. He had another attack of laughter. I have seen the look in the eyes of falcons. I used to hunt them when I was a boy, and in the opinion of my grandfather, I was good. He had a leghorn chicken farm, and falcons were a menace to his business. Shooting them was not only functional, but also right. I had forgotten until that moment that the fierceness of their eyes had haunted me for years, but it was so far in my past that I thought I had lost the memory of it. I used to hunt falcons, I said. I know it, Don Juan replied matter-of-factly. His tone carried such a certainty that I began to laugh. I thought he was a preposterous fellow. He had the gall to sound as if he knew I had hunted falcons. I felt supremely contemptuous of him. Why do you get so angry? he asked in a tone of genuine concern. I didn't know why. He began to probe me in a very unusual manner. He asked me to look at him again and tell him about the very funny bird he reminded me of. I struggled against him and, out of contempt, said that there was nothing to talk about. Then I felt compelled to ask him why he had said he knew I used to hunt falcons. Instead of answering me, he again commented on my behavior. He said I was a violent fellow that was capable of frothing at the mouth at the drop of a hat. I protested that that was not true. I had always had the idea I was rather congenial and easygoing. I said it was his fault for forcing me out of control with his unexpected words and actions. Why the anger? he asked. I took stock of my feelings and reactions. I really had no need to be angry with him. He again insisted that I should look into his eyes and tell him about the strange falcon. He had changed his wording. He had said before, a very funny bird. Then he substituted it with strange falcon. The change in wording summed up a change in my own mood. I had suddenly become sad. He squinted his eyes until they were two slits and said in an overdramatic voice that he was seeing a very strange falcon. He repeated his statement three times as if he were actually seeing it there in front of him. Don't you remember it? he asked. I didn't remember anything of the sort. What's strange about the falcon? I asked. You must tell me that, he replied. I insisted that I had no way of knowing what he was referring to, therefore I couldn't tell him anything. Don't fight me, he said. Fight your sluggishness, and remember. I seriously struggled for a moment to figure him out. It didn't occur to me that I could just as well have tried to remember. There was a time when you saw 
a lot of birds, he said, as though cueing me. I told him that when I was a child I had lived on a farm and had hunted hundreds of birds. He said that if that was the case I shouldn't have any difficulty remembering all the funny birds I had hunted. He looked at me with a question in his eyes, as if he had just given me the last clue. I've hunted so many birds, I said, that I can't remember anything about them. This bird is special, he replied, almost in a whisper. This bird is a falcon. I became involved again in figuring out what he was driving at. Was he teasing me? Was he serious? After a long interval, he urged me again to remember. I felt that it was useless for me to try to end his play. The only other thing I could do was to join him. Are you talking about a falcon that I have hunted? I asked. Yes, he whispered with his eyes closed. So this happened when I was a boy? Yes. But you said you're seeing a falcon in front of you now. I am. What are you trying to do to me? I'm trying to make you remember. What, for heaven's sakes? A falcon swift as light, he said, looking at me in the eyes. I felt my heart had stopped. Now look at me, he said. But I didn't. I heard his voice as a faint sound. Some stupendous recollection had taken me wholly. The white falcon. It all began with my grandfather's explosion of anger upon taking account of his young leghorn chickens. They had been disappearing in a steady and disconcerting manner. He personally organized and carried out a meticulous vigil, and after days of steady watching, we finally saw a big white bird flying away with a young leghorn chicken in its claws. The bird was fast and apparently knew its route. It swooped down from behind some trees, grabbed the chicken, and flew away through an opening between two ranches. It happened so fast that my grandfather had hardly seen it. But I did, and I knew that it was indeed a falcon. My grandfather said that if that was the case, it had to be an albino. We started a campaign against the albino falcon, and twice I thought I had gotten it. It even dropped its prey but it got away. It was too fast for me. It was also very intelligent. It never came back to hunt on my grandfather's farm. I would have forgotten about it had my grandfather not needled me to hunt the bird. For two months, I chased the albino falcon all over the valley where I lived. I learned its habits and I could almost intuit its route of flight. Yet its speed and the suddenness of its appearance would always baffle me. I could boast that I had prevented it from taking its prey, perhaps every time we had met, but I could never bag it. In the two months that I carried on the strange war against the albino falcon, I came close to it only once. I had been chasing it all day, and I was tired. I would sat down to rest and fell asleep under a tall eucalyptus tree. The sudden cry of a falcon woke me up. I opened my eyes without making any other movement, and I saw a whitish bird perched in the highest branches of the eucalyptus tree. 
It was the albino falcon. The chase was over. It was going to be a difficult shot. I was lying on my back and the bird had its back turned to me. There was a sudden gust of wind, and I used it to muffle the noise of lifting my twenty-two long rifle to take aim. I wanted to wait until the bird had turned or until it had begun to fly, so I wouldn't miss it. But the albino bird remained motionless. In order to take a better shot, I would have needed to move, and the falcon was too fast for that. I thought that my best alternative was to wait. And I did. A long, interminable time. Perhaps what affected me was the long wait, or perhaps it was the loneliness of the spot where the bird and I were. I suddenly felt a chill up my spine, and in an unprecedented action I stood up and left. I didn't even look to see if the bird had flown away. I never attached any significance to my final act with the albino falcon. However, it was terribly strange that I didn't shoot it. I had shot dozens of falcons before. On the farm where I grew up, shooting birds or hunting any kind of animal was a matter of course. Don Juan listened attentively as I told him the story of the albino falcon. How did you know about the white falcon? I asked when I had finished. I saw it, he replied. Where? Right here, in front of you. I wasn't in an argumentative mood anymore. What does all this mean? I asked. He said that a white bird like that was an omen, and that not shooting it down was the only right thing to do. Your death gave you a little warning, he said with a mysterious tone. It always comes as a chill. What are you talking about? I said nervously. He really made me nervous with his spooky talk. You know a lot about birds, he said. You've killed too many of them. You know how to wait. You've waited patiently for hours. I know that. I am seeing it. His words caused a great turmoil in me. I thought that what annoyed me the most about him was his certainty. I couldn't stand his dogmatic assuredness about the issues in my own life that I wasn't sure of myself. I became engulfed in my feelings of dejection, and I didn't see him leaning over me until he actually had whispered something in my ear. I didn't understand at first, and he repeated it. He told me to turn around casually and look at a boulder to my left. He said that my death was there, staring at me, and if I turned when he signaled me, I might be capable of seeing it. He signaled me with his eyes. I turned, and I thought I saw a flickering movement over the boulder. A chill ran through my body. The muscles of my abdomen contracted involuntarily, and I experienced a jolt, a spasm. After a moment, I regained my composure, and I explained away the sensation of seeing the flickering shadow as an optical illusion caused by turning my head so abruptly. Death is our eternal companion, 
Don Juan said, with the most serious air. It is always to our left, at an arm's length. It was watching you when you were watching the White Falcon. It whispered in your ear, and you felt its chill as you felt it today. It's always been watching you. It always will, until the day it taps you. He extended his arm and touched me lightly on the shoulder, and at the same time he made a deep clicking sound with his tongue. The effect was devastating. I almost got sick to my stomach. You're the boy who stalked a game and waited patiently as death waits. You know very well that death is to our left, the same way you were to the left of the White Falcon. His words had the strange power to plunge me into an unwarranted terror. My only defense was my compulsion to commit to writing everything he said. How can anyone feel so important when we know that death is stalking us? He asked. I had the feeling my answer was not really needed. I couldn't have said anything anyway. A new mood had possessed me. The thing to do when you're impatient, he proceeded, is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there, watching you. He leaned over again and whispered in my ear that if I turned to my left suddenly, upon seeing his signal, I could again see my death on the boulder. His eyes gave me an almost imperceptible signal, but I didn't dare to look. I told him that I believed him, and that he didn't have to press the issue any further, because I was terrified. He had one of his roaring belly laughs. He replied that the issue of our death was never pressed far enough and I argued that it would be meaningless for me to dwell upon my death, since such a thought would only bring discomfort and fear. You're full of crap, he exclaimed. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever you feel, as you always do, that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask, if that is so, your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. He shook his head and seemed to be waiting for my reply. I had none. My thoughts were running rampant. He delivered a staggering blow to my egotism. The pettiness of being annoyed with him was monstrous in the light of my death. I had the feeling he was fully aware of my change of mood. He'd turned the tide in his favor. He smiled and began to hum a Mexican tune. Yes, he said softly after a long pause. One of us here has to change, and fast. One of us here has to learn again that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. 
One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men that live their lives as if death will never tap them. We remained quiet for more than an hour. Then we started walking again. We meandered in the desert chaparral for hours. I didn't ask him if there was any purpose to it. It didn't matter. Somehow he'd made me recapture an old feeling, something I'd quite forgotten. The sheer joy of just moving around without attaching any intellectual purpose to it. I wanted him to let me catch a glimpse of whatever I'd seen on the boulder. Let me see that shadow again, I said. You mean your death, don't you? He replied with a touch of irony in his voice. For a moment, I felt reluctant to voice it. Yes, I finally said. Let me see my death once again. Not now, he said. You're too solid. I beg your pardon? He began to laugh and for some unknown reason his laughter was no longer offensive and insidious as it had been in the past. I didn't think that it was different from the point of view of its pitch or its loudness or the spirit of it. The new element was my mood. In view of my impending death, my fears and annoyance were nonsense. Let me talk to plants, then, I said. He roared with laughter. You're too good now, he said, still laughing. You go from one extreme to the other. Be still. There's no need to talk to plants unless you want to know their secrets. And for that, you need the most unbending intent. So save your good wishes. There's no need to see your death either. It's sufficient that you feel its presence around you. Five, Assuming Responsibility Tuesday, April 11th, 1961 I arrived at Don Juan's house in the early morning on Sunday, April 9th. Good morning, Don Juan, I said. Am I glad to see you? He looked at me and broke into a soft laughter. He had walked to my car as I was parking it and held the door open while I gathered some packages of food that I'd brought for him. We walked to the house and sat down by the door. This was the first time I had been really aware of what I was doing there. For three months, I had actually looked forward to going back to the field. It was as if a time bomb set within myself had exploded, and suddenly I had remembered something transcendental to me. I had remembered that once in my life, I had been very patient and very efficient. Before Don Juan could say anything, I asked him the question that had been pressing hard in my mind. For three months, I had been obsessed with the memory of the albino falcon. How did he know about it when I myself had forgotten? He laughed, but didn't answer. I pleaded with him to tell me. It was nothing, he said with his usual conviction. Anyone could tell that you're strange. You're just numb, that's all. I felt that he was again getting me off guard and pushing me into a corner 
in which I didn't care to be. Is it possible to see our death? I asked, trying to remain within the topic. Sure, he said, laughing. It's here, with us. How do you know that? I'm an old man. With age, one learns all kinds of things. I know lots of old people, but they've never learned this. How come you did? Well, let's say that I know all kinds of things, because I don't have a personal history, and because I don't feel more important than anything else, and because my death is sitting with me right here. He extended his left arm and moved his fingers as if he were actually petting something. I laughed. I knew where he was leading me. The old devil was going to clobber me again, probably with my self-importance, but I didn't mind this time. The memory that once I'd had a superb patience had filled me with a strange, quiet euphoria that had dispelled most of my feelings of nervousness and intolerance towards Don Juan. What I felt instead was a sensation of wonder about his acts. Who are you, really? I asked. He seemed surprised. He opened his eyes to an enormous size and blinked like a bird, closing his eyelids as if they were a shudder. They came down and went up again, and his eyes remained in focus. His maneuvers startled me, and I recoiled, and he laughed with childlike abandon. For you, I am Juan Matus, and I am at your service, he said with exaggerated politeness. I then asked my other burning question. What did you do to me the first day we met? I was referring to the look he had given me. Me? Nothing, he replied with a tone of innocence. I described to him the way I'd felt when he had looked at me and how incongruous it had been for me to be tongue-tied by it. He laughed until tears rolled down his cheeks. I again felt a surge of animosity toward him. I thought that I was being so serious and thoughtful, and he was being so Indian in his coarse ways. He apparently detected my mood and stopped laughing all of a sudden. After a long hesitation, I told him that his laughter had annoyed me because I was seriously trying to understand what had happened to me. There's nothing to understand, he replied, undisturbed. I reviewed for him the sequence of unusual events that had taken place since I had met him, starting with the mysterious look he had given me to remembering the albino falcon and seeing on the boulder the shadow he had said was my death. Why are you doing all this to me? I asked. There was no belligerence in my question. I was only curious as to why it was me in particular. You asked me to tell you what I know about plants, he said. I noticed a tinge of sarcasm in his voice. He sounded as if he were humoring me. But what you've told me so far has nothing to do with plants, I protested. His reply 
was that it took time to learn about them. My feeling was that it was useless to argue with him. I realized then the total idiocy of the easy and absurd resolutions I'd made. While I was at home, I had promised myself that I was never going to lose my temper or feel annoyed with Don Juan. In the actual situation, however, the minute he rebuffed me, I had another attack of peevishness. I felt there was no way for me to interact with him, and that angered me. Think of your death now, Don Juan said suddenly. It is at arm's length. It may tap you any moment. So really, you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that. Do you want to know what I did to you the first day we met? I saw you, and I saw that you thought you were lying to me. But you weren't. Not really. I told him that his explanation confused me even more. He replied that that was the reason he didn't want to explain his acts, and that explanations weren't necessary. He said that the only thing that counted was action, acting instead of talking. He pulled out a straw mat and lay down, propping his head up with a bundle. He made himself comfortable, and then he told me that there was another thing I had to perform, if I really wanted to learn about plants. What was wrong with you when I saw you, and what is wrong with you now, is that you don't like to take responsibility for what you do, he said slowly, as if to give me time to understand what he was saying. When you were telling me all those things in the bus depot, you were aware that they were lies. Why were you lying? I explained that my objective had been to find a key informant for my work. Don Juan smiled and began humming a Mexican tune. When a man decides to do something, he must go all the way, he said. But he must take responsibility for what he does, no matter what he does. He must know, first, why he is doing it. And then he must proceed with his actions without having doubts or remorse about them. He examined me. I didn't know what to say. Finally, I ventured an opinion, almost as a protest. That's an impossibility, I said. He asked me why, and I said that perhaps, ideally, that was what everybody thought they should do. In practice, however, there was no way to avoid doubts and remorse. Of course there is a way, he replied with conviction. Look at me, he said. I have no doubts or remorse. Everything I do is my decision and my responsibility. The simplest thing I do, to take you for a walk in the desert, for instance, may very well mean my death. Death is stalking me. Therefore, I have no room for doubts or remorse. If I have to die as a result of taking you for a walk, then I must die. You, on the other hand, feel that you're immortal and the decisions of an immortal man can be cancelled or regretted or doubted. In a world where death is the hunter, my friend, there isn't time for regrets or doubts. 
There is only time for decisions. I argued, in sincerity, that in my opinion that was an unreal world, because it was arbitrarily made by taking an idealized form of behavior and saying that that was the way to proceed. I told him the story of my father, who used to give me endless lectures about the wonders of a healthy mind and a healthy body, and how young men should temper their bodies with hardships and with feats of athletic competition. He was a young man. When I was eight years old, he was only twenty-seven. During the summertime, as a rule, he would come from the city where he taught school to spend at least a month with me at my grandparents' farm, where I lived. It was a hellish month for me. I told Don Juan one instance of my father's behavior that I thought would apply to the situation at hand. Almost immediately upon arriving at the farm, my father would insist on taking a long walk with me at his side so we could talk things over. And while we were talking, he would make plans for us to go swimming every day at 6 a.m. At night he would set the alarm for 5.30 to have plenty of time, because at six sharp we had to be in the water. And when the alarm would go off in the morning, he would jump out of bed, put on his glasses, go to the window, and look out. I had even memorized the ensuing monologue. Um, a bit cloudy today. Listen, I'm gonna lie down again for just five minutes, okay? No more than five. I'm just going to stretch my muscles and fully wake up. He would invariably fall asleep again until ten, sometimes until noon. I told Don Juan that what annoyed me was his refusal to give up his obviously phony resolutions. He would repeat this ritual every morning until I would finally hurt his feelings by refusing to set the alarm clock. They weren't phony resolutions, Don Juan said, obviously taking sides with my father. He just didn't know how to get out of bed, that's all. At any rate, I said, I'm always leery of unreal resolutions. What would be a resolution that is real, then? Don Juan asked with a coy smile. If my father would have said to himself that he couldn't go swimming at six in the morning, but perhaps at three in the afternoon. Your resolutions injure the spirit, Don Juan said with an air of great seriousness. I thought I even detected a note of sadness in his tone. We were quiet for a long time. My peevishness had vanished. I thought of my father. He didn't want to swim at three in the afternoon, don't you see? Don Juan said. His words made me jump. I told him that my father was weak, and so was his world of ideal acts that he never performed. I was almost shouting. Don Juan didn't say a word. He shook his head slowly in a rhythmical way. I felt terribly sad. Thinking of my father always gave me a consuming feeling. You think you were stronger, don't you? He asked in a casual tone. I said I did, and I began to tell him all the emotional turmoil that my father had put me through, but he interrupted me. Was he mean to you? He asked. No. Was he petty with you? No. 
Did he do all he could for you? Yes. Then what was wrong with him? Again, I began to shout that he was weak, but I caught myself and lowered my voice. I felt a bit ludicrous being cross-examined by Don Juan. What are you doing all this for? I said. We were supposed to be talking about plants. I felt more annoyed and despondent than ever. I told him that he had no business or the remotest qualifications to pass judgment on my behavior, and he exploded into a belly laugh. When you get angry, you always feel righteous, don't you? He said, and blinked like a bird. He was right. I had the tendency to feel justified at being angry. Let's not talk about my father, I said, feigning a happy mood. Let's talk about plants. No, let's talk about your father, he insisted. That's the place to begin today. If you think that you were so much stronger than he, why didn't you go swimming at six in the morning in his place? I told him that I couldn't believe he was seriously asking me that. I had always thought that swimming at six in the morning was my father's business and not mine. It was also your business from the moment you accepted his idea, Don Juan snapped at me. I said that I had never accepted it, that I had always known my father wasn't truthful to himself. Don Juan asked me, matter-of-factly, why I hadn't voiced my opinion at the time. You don't tell your father things like that, I said as a weak explanation. Why not? That wasn't done in my house, that's all. You've done worse things in your house, he declared like a judge from the bench. The only thing you never did was to shine your spirit. There was such a devastating force in his words that they echoed in my mind. He brought all my defenses down. I couldn't argue with him. I took refuge in writing my notes. I tried a last feeble explanation and said that all my life I had encountered people of my father's kind who had, like my father, hooked me somehow into their schemes, and as a rule I had always been left dangling. You're complaining, he said softly. You've been complaining all your life because you don't assume responsibility for your decisions. If you would have assumed responsibility for your father's idea of swimming at six in the morning, you would have swum, by yourself, if necessary. Or you would have told him to go to hell the first time he opened his mouth after you knew his devices. But you didn't say anything. Therefore, you were as weak as your father. To assume the responsibility of one's decisions means that one is ready to die for them. Wait, wait, I said. You're twisting this around. He didn't let me finish. I was going to tell him that I had used my father only as an example of an unrealistic way of acting, and that nobody in his right mind would be willing to die for such an idiotic thing. It doesn't matter what the decision is he said. Nothing could be more or less serious than anything else, don't you see? In a world where death is the hunter, there are no small or big decisions. There are only decisions that we make in the face of our inevitable death. 
I couldn't say anything. Perhaps an hour went by. Don Juan was perfectly motionless on his mat, although he wasn't sleeping. Why do you tell me all this, Don Juan? I asked. Why are you doing this to me? You came to me, he said. No, that wasn't the case. You were brought to me. And I've had a gesture with you. I beg your pardon? You could have had a gesture with your father by swimming for him. But you didn't, perhaps because you were too young. I've lived longer than you. I have nothing pending. There's no hurry in my life. Therefore, I can properly have a gesture with you. In the afternoon, we went for a hike. I easily kept his pace and marveled again at his stupendous physical prowess. He walked so nimbly and with such sure steps that next to him I was like a child. We went in an easterly direction. I noticed then that he didn't like to talk while he walked. If I spoke to him, he would stop walking in order to answer me. After a couple of hours, we came to a hill. He sat down and signaled me to sit by him. He announced in a mock dramatic tone that he was going to tell me a story. He said that once upon a time there was a young man, a destitute Indian, who lived among the white men in a city. He had no home, no relatives, no friends. He had come into the city to find his fortune and had found only misery and pain. From time to time he made a few cents working like a mule, barely enough for a morsel. Otherwise, he had to beg or steal food. Don Juan said that one day the young man went to the marketplace. He walked up and down the street in a haze, his eyes wild upon seeing all the good things that were gathered there. He was so frantic that he didn't see where he was walking, and ended up tripping over some baskets and falling on top of an old man. The old man was carrying four enormous gourds, and had just sat down to rest and eat. Don Juan smiled knowingly and said that the old man found it quite strange that the young man had stumbled on him. He wasn't angry at being disturbed, but amazed at why this particular young man had fallen on top of him. The young man, on the other hand, was angry and told him to get out of his way. He wasn't concerned at all about the ultimate reason for their meeting. He hadn't noticed that their paths had actually crossed. Don Juan mimicked the motions of someone going after something that was rolling over. He said that the old man's gourds had turned over and were rolling down the street. When the young man saw the gourds, he thought he had found his food for the day. He helped the old man up and insisted on helping him carry the heavy gourds. The old man told him that he was on his way to his home in the mountains, and the young man insisted on going with him, at least part of the way. The old man took the road to the mountains, and as they walked, he gave the young man part of the food he had bought at the market. The young man ate to his heart's content, and when he was quite satisfied, he began to notice how heavy the gourds were and clutched them tightly. Don Juan opened his eyes and smiled with a devilish grin and said that the young man asked, What do you carry in these gourds? The old man didn't answer, but told him that he was going to show him a companion or friend who could alleviate his sorrows 
and give him advice and wisdom about the ways of the world. Don Juan made a majestic gesture with both hands and said that the old man summoned the most beautiful deer that the young man had ever seen. The deer was so tame that it came to him and walked around him. It glittered and shone. The young man was spellbound and knew right away that it was a spirit deer. The old man told him then that if he wished to have that friend and its wisdom, all he had to do was to let go of the gourds. Don Juan's grin portrayed ambition. He said that the young man's petty desires were pricked upon hearing such a request. Don Juan's eyes became small and devilish as he voiced the young man's question. What do you have in these four enormous gourds? Don Juan said that the old man very serenely replied that he was carrying food, pinole, and water. He stopped narrating the story and walked around in a circle a couple of times. I didn't know what he was doing, but apparently it was part of the story. The circle seemed to portray the deliberations of the young man. Don Juan said that, of course, the young man hadn't believed a word. He calculated that if the old man, who was obviously a wizard, was willing to give a spirit deer for his gourds, then the gourds must have been filled with power beyond belief. Don Juan contorted his face again into a devilish grin and said that the young man declared that he wanted to have the gourds. There was a long pause that seemed to mark the end of the story. Don Juan remained quiet, yet I was sure he wanted me to ask about it, and I did. What happened to the young man? He took the gourds, he replied with a smile of satisfaction. There was another long pause. I laughed. I thought that this had been a real Indian story. Don Juan's eyes were shining as he smiled at me. There was an air of innocence about him. He began to laugh in soft spurts and asked me, Don't you want to know about the gourds? Of course I want to know. I thought that was the end of the story. Oh, no, he said, with a mischievous light in his eyes. The young man took his gourds and ran away to an isolated place and opened them. What did he find? I asked. Don Juan glanced at me, and I had the feeling he was aware of my mental gymnastics. He shook his head and chuckled. Well, I urged him, were the gourds empty? There was only food and water inside the gourds, he said. And the young man, in a fit of anger, smashed them against the rocks. I said that his reaction was only natural. Anyone in his position would have done the same. Don Juan's reply was that the young man was a fool who didn't know what he was looking for. He didn't know what power was, so he couldn't tell whether or not he had found it. He hadn't taken responsibility for his decision, therefore he was angered by his blunder. He expected to gain something and got nothing instead. Don Juan speculated that if I were the young man, and if I had followed my inclinations, 
I would have ended up angry and remorseful, and would no doubt have spent the rest of my life feeling sorry for myself for what I had lost. Then he explained the behavior of the old man. He had cleverly fed the young man so as to give him the daring of a satisfied stomach. Thus the young man, upon finding only food in the gourds, smashed them in a fit of anger. Had he been aware of his decision and assumed responsibility for it, Don Juan said, he would have taken the food and would have been more than satisfied with it. And perhaps he might have even realized that that food was power too. Six. Becoming a Hunter Friday, June 23, 1961 As soon as I sat down, I bombarded Don Juan with questions. He didn't answer me, and made an impatient gesture with his hand, to be quiet. He seemed to be in a serious mood. I was thinking that you haven't changed at all in the time you've been trying to learn about plants he said in an accusing tone. He began reviewing in a loud voice all the changes of personality he'd recommended I should undertake. I told him that I had considered the matter very seriously and found that I couldn't possibly fulfill them because each of them ran contrary to my core. He replied that to merely consider them wasn't enough and that whatever he had said to me was not said just for fun. I again insisted that, although I had done very little in matters of adjusting my personal life to his ideas, I really wanted to learn the uses of plants. After a long, uneasy silence, I boldly asked him, Would you teach me about peyote, Don Juan? He said that my intentions alone were not enough, and that to know about peyote, he called it mescalito for the first time, was a serious matter. It seemed that there was nothing else to say. In the early evening, however, he set up a test for me. He put forth a problem, without giving me any clues to its solution, to find a beneficial place or spot in the area right in front of his door, where we always sat to talk, a spot where I could allegedly feel perfectly happy and invigorated. During the course of the night, while I attempted to find the spot by rolling on the ground, I twice detected a change of coloration on the uniformly dark dirt floor of the designated area. The problem exhausted me, and I fell asleep on one of the places where I detected the change in color. In the morning, Don Juan woke me up and announced that I had had a very successful experience. Not only had I found the beneficial spot I was looking for, but I had also found its opposite, an enemy or negative spot, and the colors associated with both. Saturday, June 24th, 1961 We went into the desert chaparral in the early morning. As we walked, Don Juan explained to me that finding a beneficial or an enemy spot was an important need for a man in the wilderness. I wanted to steer the conversation to the topic of peyote, but he flatly refused to talk about it. He warned me that there should be no mention of it unless he himself brought up the subject. 
We sat down to rest in the shade of some tall bushes in an area of thick vegetation. The desert chaparral around us was not quite dry yet. It was a warm day, and the flies kept on pestering me, but they didn't seem to bother Don Juan. I wondered whether he was just ignoring them, but then I noticed that they weren't landing on his face at all. Sometimes it's necessary to find a beneficial spot quickly, out in the open, Don Juan went on. Or maybe it is necessary to determine quickly whether or not the spot where one is about to rest is a bad one. One time, we sat to rest by some hill, and you got very angry and upset. That spot was your enemy. A little crow gave you a warning, remember? I remembered that he had made a point of telling me to avoid that area in the future. I also remembered that I had become angry because he hadn't let me laugh. I thought that the crow that flew overhead was an omen for me alone, he said. I would never have suspected that the crows were friendly towards you, too. What are you talking about? The crow was an omen, he went on. If you knew about crows, you would have avoided the place like the plague. Crows aren't always available to give warning, though, and you must learn to find, by yourself, a proper place to camp or to rest. After a long pause, Don Juan suddenly turned to me and said that in order to find the proper place to rest, all I had to do was to cross my eyes. He gave me a knowing look and in a confidential tone told me, that I had done precisely that when I was rolling on his porch, and thus I had been capable of finding two spots and their colors. He let me know that he was impressed by my accomplishment. I really don't know what I did, I said. You crossed your eyes, he said emphatically. That's the technique. You must have done that, although you don't remember it. Don Juan then described the technique, which he said took years to perfect, and which consisted of gradually forcing the eyes to see separately the same image. The lack of image conversion entailed a double perception of the world. This double perception, according to Don Juan, allowed one the opportunity of judging changes in the surroundings, which the eyes were ordinarily incapable of perceiving. Don Juan coaxed me to try it. He assured me, that it wasn't injurious to the sight. He said that I should begin by looking in short glances, almost with the corners of my eyes. He pointed to a large bush and showed me how. I had a strange feeling, seeing Don Juan's eyes taking incredibly fast glances at the bush. His eyes reminded me of those of a shifty animal that can't look straight. We walked for perhaps an hour while I tried not to focus my sight on anything. Then Don Juan asked me to start separating the images perceived by each of my eyes. After another hour or so, I got a terrible headache and had to stop. Do you think you could find by yourself a proper place for us to rest? he asked. I had no idea what the criterion for a proper place was. He patiently explained that looking in short glances allowed the eyes to pick out unusual sights. Such as what? I asked.
They aren't sights proper, he said. They're more like feelings. If you look at a bush or a tree or a rock where you may like to rest, your eyes can make you feel whether or not that's the best resting place. I again urged him to describe what those feelings were, but he either could not describe them or he simply didn't want to. He said that I should practice by picking out a place, and then he would tell me whether or not my eyes were working. At one moment, I caught sight of what I thought was a pebble which reflected light. I couldn't see it if I focused my eyes on it, but if I swept the area with fast glances, I could detect a sort of faint glitter. I pointed out the place to Don Juan. It was in the middle of an open, unshaded, flat area, devoid of thick bushes. He laughed uproariously, and then asked me why I had picked that specific spot. I explained that I was seeing a glitter. I don't care what you see, he said. You could be seeing an elephant. How you feel is the important issue. I didn't feel anything at all. He gave me a mysterious look and said that he wished he could oblige me and sit down to rest with me there, but he was going to sit somewhere else while I tested my choice. I sat down while he looked at me curiously from a distance of thirty or forty feet away. After a few minutes, he began to laugh loudly. Somehow, his laughter made me nervous. It put me on edge. I felt he was making fun of me, and I got angry. I began to question my motives for being there. There was definitely something wrong in the way my total endeavor with Don Juan was proceeding. I felt that I was just a pawn in his clutches. Suddenly, Don Juan charged at me at full speed and pulled me by the arm, dragging me bodily for ten or twelve feet. He helped me to stand up and wiped some perspiration from his forehead. I noticed then that he had exerted himself to his limit. He patted me on the back and said that I had picked the wrong place and that he had to rescue me in a real hurry because he saw that the spot where I was sitting was about to take over my entire feelings. I laughed. The image of Don Juan charging at me was very funny. He had actually run like a young man. His feet moved as if he were grabbing the soft, reddish dirt of the desert in order to catapult himself over me. I'd seen him laughing at me, and then in a matter of seconds, he was dragging me by the arm. After a while, he urged me to continue looking for a proper place to rest. We kept on walking but I didn't detect or feel anything at all. Perhaps, if I had been more relaxed, I would have noticed or felt something. I had ceased, however, to be angry with him. Finally, he pointed to some rocks, and we came to a halt. Don't feel disappointed, Don Juan said. It takes a long time to train the eyes properly. I didn't say anything. I wasn't going to be disappointed about something I didn't understand at all. Yet I had to admit that three times already since I'd begun to visit Don Juan, I'd become very angry and had been agitated to the point of being nearly ill while sitting on places that he called bad. The trick is to feel with your eyes, he said. Your problem now is that you don't know what to feel. It'll come to you, though.
with practice. Perhaps you should tell me, Don Juan, what I'm supposed to feel. That's impossible. Why? No one can tell you what you're supposed to feel. It isn't heat or light or glare or color. It's something else. Can't you describe it? No. All I can do is give you the technique. Once you learn to separate the images and see two of everything, you must focus your attention in the area between the two images. Any change worthy of notice would take place there, in that area. What kind of changes are they? That's not important. The feeling that you get is what counts. Every man is different. You saw glitter today. But that didn't mean anything, because the feeling was missing. I can't tell you how to feel. You must learn that yourself. We rested in silence for some time. Don Juan covered his face with his hat and remained motionless, as if he were asleep. I became absorbed in writing my notes, until he made a sudden movement that made me jolt. He sat up abruptly and faced me, frowning. You have a knack for hunting, he said. And that's what you should learn. Hunting. We're not going to talk about plants anymore. He puffed out his jaw for an instant, then candidly added, I don't think we ever have, anyway. Have we? And laughed. We spent the rest of the day walking in every direction while he gave me an unbelievably detailed explanation about rattlesnakes. The way they nest, the way they move around, their seasonal habits, their quirks of behavior. Then he proceeded to corroborate each of the points he had made, and finally he caught and killed a large snake, he cut its head off, cleaned its viscera, skinned it, and roasted the meat. His movements had such a grace and skill that it was a sheer pleasure just to be around him. I'd listened to him and watched him, spellbound. My concentration had been so complete that the rest of the world had practically vanished for me. Eating the snake was a hard re-entry into the world of ordinary affairs. I felt nauseated when I began to chew a bite of snake meat. It was an ill-founded queasiness, as the meat was delicious, but my stomach seemed to be rather an independent unit. I could hardly swallow at all. I thought Don Juan would have a heart attack from laughing so hard. Afterwards, we sat down for a leisurely rest in the shade of some rocks. I began to work on my notes, and the quantity of them made me realize that he had given me an astonishing amount of information about rattlesnakes. Your hunter's spirit has returned to you, Don Juan said suddenly and with a serious face. Now you're hooked. I beg your pardon? I wanted him to elaborate on his statement that I was hooked, but he only laughed and repeated it. How am I hooked? I insisted. Hunters will always hunt, he said. I am a hunter myself. Do you mean you hunt for a living? I hunt in order to live. I can live off the land, anywhere. He indicated the total surroundings with his head. To be a hunter means that one knows a great deal, he went on. It means that one can see the world in different ways. In order to be a hunter, one must be in perfect balance with everything else. Otherwise, hunting would become a meaningless chore. For instance, today... 
we took a little snake. I had to apologize to her for cutting her life off so suddenly and so definitely. I did what I did, knowing that my own life will also be cut off someday, in very much the same fashion, suddenly and definitely. So, all in all, we and the snakes are on a par. One of them fed us today. I'd never conceived a balance of that kind when I used to hunt, I said. That's not true. You didn't just kill animals. You and your family all ate the game. His statements carried the conviction of someone who had been there. He was, of course, right. There had been times when I had provided the incidental wild meat for my family. After a moment's hesitation, I asked, How did you know that? There are certain things that I just know, he said. I can't tell you how, though. I told him that my aunts and uncles would very seriously call all the birds I would bag pheasants. Don Juan said that he could easily imagine them calling a sparrow a tiny pheasant, and added a comical rendition of how they would chew it. The extraordinary movements of his jaw gave me the feeling that he was actually chewing a whole bird, bones and all. I really think that you have a touch for hunting he said, staring at me. And we've been barking up the wrong tree. Perhaps you'll be willing to change your way of life in order to become a hunter. He reminded me that I had found out with just a little exertion on my part that in the world there were good and bad spots for me. He added that I had also found out the specific colors associated with them. That means that you have a knack for hunting he declared. Not everyone who tried would find their colors and their spots at the same time. To be a hunter sounded very nice and romantic, but it was an absurdity to me, since I didn't particularly care to hunt. You don't have to care to hunt or to like it, he replied to my complaint. You have a natural inclination. I think the best hunters never like hunting. They do it well, that's all. I had the feeling Don Juan was capable of arguing his way out of anything, and yet he maintained that he didn't like to talk at all. It's like what I've told you about hunters, he said. I don't necessarily like to talk. I just have a knack for it, and I do it well, that's all. I found his mental agility truly funny. Hunters must be exceptionally tight individuals, he continued. A hunter leaves very little to chance. I've been trying all along to convince you that you must learn to live in a different way. So far, I haven't succeeded. There was nothing you could have grabbed onto. Now, it's different. I've brought back your old hunter's spirit. Perhaps through it, you will change. I protested that I didn't want to become a hunter. I reminded him that in the beginning I just wanted him to tell me about medicinal plants, but he had made me stray so far away from my original purpose that I couldn't clearly recall any more whether or not I had really wanted to learn about plants. Good, he said, really good. If you don't have such a clear picture of what you want, you may become more humble. Let's put it this way. For your purposes... It doesn't really matter whether you learn about plants or about hunting. 
You've told me that yourself. You're interested in anything that anyone can tell you. True? I had said that to him in trying to define the scope of anthropology and in order to draft him as my informant. Don Juan chuckled, obviously aware of his control over the situation. I am a hunter, he said, as if he were reading my thoughts. I leave very little to chance. Perhaps I should explain to you that I learned to be a hunter. I haven't always lived the way I do now. At one point in my life, I had to change. Now, I'm pointing the direction to you. I'm guiding you. I know what I'm talking about. Someone taught me all this. I didn't figure it out for myself. Do you mean that you had a teacher, Don Juan? Let's say that someone taught me to hunt the way I want to teach you now, he said, and quickly changed the topic. I think that once upon a time hunting was one of the greatest acts a man could perform, he said. All hunters were powerful men. In fact, a hunter had to be powerful to begin with in order to withstand the rigors of that life. Suddenly, I became curious. Was he referring to a time perhaps prior to the conquest? I began to probe him. When was the time you were talking about? Once upon a time. When? What does once upon a time mean? It means once upon a time. Or maybe it means now. Today. It doesn't matter. At one time, everybody knew that a hunter was the best of men. Now not everyone knows that. But there are a sufficient number of people who do. I know it. Someday you will. See what I mean? Do the Yaqui Indians feel that way about hunters? That's what I want to know. Not necessarily. Do the Pima Indians? Not all of them, but some. I named various neighboring groups. I wanted to commit him to a statement that hunting was a shared belief and practice of some specific people. But he avoided answering me directly. So I changed the subject. Why are you doing all this for me, Don Juan? I asked. He took off his hat and scratched his temples in feigned bafflement. I'm having a gesture with you, he said softly. Other people have had a similar gesture with you. Someday you yourself will have the same gesture with others. Let's say that it's my turn. One day I found out that if I wanted to be a hunter worthy of self-respect, I had to change my way of life. I used to whine and complain a great deal. I had good reasons to feel shortchanged. I'm an Indian, and Indians are treated like dogs. There was nothing I could do to remedy that. So all I was left with was my sorrow. But then my good fortune spared me, and someone taught me to hunt and I realized that the way I lived wasn't worth living. So I changed it. But I'm happy with my life, Don Juan. Why should I have to change it? He began to sing a Mexican song very softly, and then hummed the tune. His head bobbed up and down as he followed the beat of the song. 
Do you think that you and I are equals? He asked in a sharp voice. His question caught me off guard. I experienced a peculiar buzzing in my ears as though he had actually shouted his words, which he hadn't done. However, there had been a metallic sound in his voice that was reverberating in my ears. I scratched the inside of my left ear with the small finger of my left hand. My ears itched all the time, and I had developed a rhythmical nervous way of rubbing the inside of them with the small finger of either hand. The movement was more properly a shake of my whole arm. Don Juan watched my movements with apparent fascination. Well, are we equals? he asked. Of course we're equals, I said. I was, naturally, being condescending. I felt very warm towards him, even though at times I didn't know what to do with him. Yet I still held in the back of my mind, although I would never voice it, the belief that I, being a university student, a man of the sophisticated Western world, was superior to an Indian. No, he said calmly. We are not. Why, certainly we are, I protested. No, he said in a soft voice. We're not equals. I am a hunter and a warrior, and you are a pimp. My mouth fell open. I couldn't believe that Don Juan had actually said that. I dropped my notebook and stared at him dumbfoundedly, and then, of course, I became furious. He looked at me with calm and collected eyes. I avoided his gaze. And then he began to talk. He enunciated his words clearly. They poured out smoothly and deadly. He said that I was pimping for someone else. That I wasn't fighting my own battles, but the battles of some unknown people. That I didn't want to learn about plants or about hunting or about anything. And that his world of precise acts and feelings and decisions was infinitely more effective than the blundering idiocy I called my life. After he finished talking, I was numb. He'd spoken without belligerence or conceit, but with such power, and yet such calmness, that I wasn't even angry anymore. We remained silent. I felt embarrassed, and couldn't think of anything appropriate to say. I waited for him to break the silence. Hours went by. Don Juan became motionless by degrees, until his body had acquired a strange, almost frightening rigidity. His silhouette became difficult to make out as it got dark, and finally when it was pitch black around us, he seemed to have merged into the blackness of the stones. His state of motionlessness was so total that it was as if he didn't exist any longer. It was midnight when I finally realized that he could and would stay motionless there in that wilderness, in those rocks, perhaps forever if he had to. His world of precise acts and feelings and decisions was indeed superior. I quietly touched his arms, and tears flooded me. 7. Being Inaccessible Thursday, June 29, 1961 
Again, Don Juan, as he had done every day for nearly a week, held me spellbound with his knowledge of specific details about the behavior of game. He first explained and then corroborated a number of hunting tactics based on what he called the quirks of quails. I became so utterly involved in his explanations that a whole day went by, and I hadn't noticed the passage of time. I even forgot to eat lunch. Don Juan made joking remarks that it was quite unusual for me to miss a meal. By the end of the day, he had caught five quail in a most ingenious trap, which he had taught me to assemble and set up. Two are enough for us, he said, and let three of them loose. He then taught me how to roast quail. I had wanted to cut some shrubs and make a barbecue pit, the way my grandfather used to make it, lined with green branches and leaves and sealed with dirt. But Don Juan said that there was no need to injure the shrubs, since we had already injured the quail. After we finished eating, we walked very leisurely towards a rocky area. We sat on a sandstone hillside, and I said jokingly, that if he would have left the matter up to me, I would have cooked all five of the quail, and that my barbecue would have tasted much better than his roast. No doubt, he said. But if you would have done all that, we might have never left this place in one piece. What do you mean? I asked. What would have prevented us? The shrubs, the quail, everything around would have pitched in. I never know when you're talking seriously, I said. He made a gesture of feigned impatience and smacked his lips. You have a weird notion of what it means to talk seriously, he said. I laugh a great deal because I like to laugh, yet everything I say is deadly serious, even if you don't understand it. Why should the world be only as you think it is? Who gave you the authority to say so? There's no proof that the world is otherwise, I said. It was getting dark. I was wondering if it was time to go back to his house, but he didn't seem to be in a hurry, and I was enjoying myself. The wind was cold. Suddenly, he stood up and told me that we had to climb to the hilltop and stand up on an area clear of shrubs. Don't be afraid, he said. I'm your friend, and I'll see that nothing bad happens to you. What do you mean? I asked, alarmed. Don Juan had the most insidious facility to shift me from sheer enjoyment to sheer fright. The world is very strange at this time of the day, he said. That's what I mean. No matter what you see, don't be afraid. What am I going to see? I don't know yet, he said, peering into the distance towards the south. He didn't seem to be worried. I also kept on looking in the same direction. Suddenly, he perked up and pointed with his left hand toward a dark area in the desert shrubbery. There it is, he said, as if he had been waiting for something which had suddenly appeared. What is it? I asked. There it is, he repeated. Look, look! I didn't see anything, just the shrubs. It's here now he said with great urgency in his voice. It is here. A sudden gust of wind hit me at that instant and made my eyes burn. I stared towards the area in question, 
There was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. I can't see a thing, I said. You just felt it, he replied. Right now. It got into your eyes and kept you from seeing. What are you talking about? I've deliberately brought you to a hilltop, he said. We are very noticeable here, and something is coming to us. What, the wind? Not just the wind, he said sternly. It may seem to be wind to you, because wind is all you know. I strained my eyes, staring into the desert shrubs. Don Juan stood silently by me for a moment, and then walked into the nearby chaparral and began to tear some big branches from the surrounding shrubs. He gathered eight of them and made a bundle. He ordered me to do the same and to apologize to the plants in a loud voice for mutilating them. When we had two bundles, he made me run with them to the hilltop and lie down on my back between two large rocks. With tremendous speed, he arranged the branches of my bundle to cover my entire body. Then he covered himself in the same manner and whispered through the leaves that I should watch how the so-called wind would cease to blow once we had become unnoticeable. At one moment, to my utter amazement, the wind actually ceased to blow, as Don Juan had predicted. It happened so gradually that I would have missed the change had I not been deliberately waiting for it. For a while, the wind had hissed through the leaves over my face, and then gradually it became quiet all around us. I whispered to Don Juan that the wind had stopped, and he whispered back that I shouldn't make any overt noise or movement because what I was calling the wind was not wind at all, but something that had a volition of its own and could actually recognize us. I laughed out of nervousness. In a muffled voice, Don Juan called my attention to the quietness around us and whispered that he was going to stand up and I should follow him, putting the branches aside very gently with my left hand. We stood up at the same time. Don Juan stared for a moment into the distance toward the south and then turned around abruptly and faced the west. Sneaky. Really sneaky, he muttered, pointing to an area towards the southwest. Look, look, he urged me. I stared with all the intensity I was capable of. I wanted to see whatever he was referring to, but I didn't notice anything at all. Or rather, I didn't notice anything I hadn't seen before. There were just shrubs, which seemed to be agitated by a soft wind. They rippled. It's here, Don Juan said. At that moment I felt a blast of air in my face. It seemed that the wind had actually begun to blow after we stood up. I couldn't believe it. There had to be a logical explanation for it. Don Juan chuckled softly and told me not to tax my brain trying to reason it out. Let's go gather the shrubs once more, he said. I hate to do this to these little plants, but we must stop you. He picked up the branches we had used to cover ourselves and piled small rocks and dirt over them. Then, repeating the same movements we had made before, each of us gathered eight new branches. In the meantime, the wind kept on blowing ceaselessly. I could feel it ruffling the hair around my ears. Don Juan whispered that once he had covered me, I shouldn't make the slightest movement or sound. 
He very quickly put the branches over my body, and then he lay down and covered himself. We stayed in that position for about twenty minutes, and during that time a most extraordinary phenomenon occurred. The wind again changed from a hard, continuous gust to a mild vibration. I held my breath, waiting for Don Juan's signal. At a given moment, he gently shoved off the branches. I did the same, and we stood up. The hilltop was very quiet. There was only a slight, soft vibration of leaves in the surrounding chaparral. Don Juan's eyes were fixedly staring at an area in the shrubs south of us. "'There it is again!' he exclaimed in a loud voice. I involuntarily jumped, nearly losing my balance, and he ordered me in a loud, imperative voice to look. "'What am I supposed to see?' I asked desperately. He said that it, the wind, or whatever, was like a cloud or a whorl that was quite a ways above the shrubs, twirling its way to the hilltop where we were. I saw a ripple forming on the bushes in the distance. There it comes, Don Juan said in my ear. Look how it's searching for us. Right then, a strong, steady gust of wind hit my face as it had hit it before. This time, however, my reaction was different. I was terrified. I hadn't seen what Don Juan had described, but I had seen a most eerie wave rippling the shrubs. I didn't want to succumb to my fear and deliberately sought any kind of suitable explanation. I said to myself that there must be continuous air currents in the area, and Don Juan, being thoroughly acquainted with the whole region, was not only aware of that, but was capable of mentally plotting their occurrence. All he had to do was to lie down, count, and wait for the wind to taper off, and once he stood up, he had only to wait again for its reoccurrence. Don Juan's voice shook me out of my mental deliberations. He was telling me that it was time to leave. I stalled. I wanted to make sure that the wind would taper off. I didn't see anything, Don Juan, I said. You noticed something unusual, though. Perhaps you should tell me again what I was supposed to see? I've already told you, he said. Something that hides in the wind and looks like a whirl, a cloud, a mist, a face that twirls around. Don Juan made a gesture with his hands to depict a horizontal and a vertical motion. It moves in a specific direction, he went on. It either tumbles or it twirls. A hunter must know all that in order to move correctly. I wanted to humor him, but he seemed to be trying so hard to make his point that I didn't dare. He looked at me for a moment, and I moved my eyes away. To believe that the world is only as you think it is is stupid, he said. The world is a mysterious place, especially in the twilight. He pointed towards the wind with a movement of his chin. This can follow us, he said. It can make us tired, or it might even kill us. That wind? At this time of the day, in the twilight, there is no wind. At this time, there is only power. We sat on the hilltop for an hour. The wind blew hard and constantly all that time.
Friday, June 30, 1961. In the late afternoon, after eating, Don Juan and I moved to the area in front of his door. I sat on my spot and began working on my notes. He lay down on his back with his hands folded over his stomach. We had stayed around the house all day on account of the wind. Don Juan explained that we had disturbed the wind deliberately and that it was better not to fool around with it. I had even had to sleep covered with branches. A sudden gust of wind made Don Juan get up in one incredibly agile jump. Damn it, he said. The wind is looking for you. I can't buy that, Don Juan, I said, laughing. I really can't. I wasn't being stubborn. I just found it impossible to endorse the idea that the wind had its own volition and was looking for me, or that it had actually spotted us and rushed to us on top of the hill. I said that the idea of a willful wind was a view of the world that was rather simplistic. What is the wind, then? he asked in a challenging tone. I patiently explained to him that masses of hot and cold air produced different pressures, and that the pressure made the masses of air move vertically and horizontally. It took me a long while to explain all the details of basic meteorology. You mean that all there is to the wind is hot and cold air? he asked in a tone of bafflement. I'm afraid so, I said, and silently enjoyed my triumph. Don Juan seemed to be dumbfounded, but then he looked at me and began to laugh uproariously. Your opinions are final opinions, he said with a note of sarcasm. They are the last word, aren't they? For a hunter, however, your opinions are pure crap. It makes no difference whether the pressure is one or two or ten. If you would live out here in the wilderness, you would know that during the twilight, the wind becomes power. A hunter that is worth his salt knows that and acts accordingly. How does he act? He uses the twilight and that power hidden in the wind. How? If it's convenient to him, the hunter hides from the power by covering himself and remaining motionless until the twilight is gone and the power has sealed him into its protection. Don Juan made a gesture of enveloping something with his hands. Its protection is like a... He paused in search of a word, and I suggested cocoon. That's right, he said. The protection of the power seals you like in a cocoon. A hunter can stay out in the open and no puma or coyote or slimy bug could bother him. A mountain lion could come up to the hunter's nose and sniff him, and if the hunter doesn't move, the lion would leave. I can guarantee you that. If the hunter, on the other hand, wants to be noticed, all he has to do is to stand on a hilltop at the time of the twilight, and the power will nag him and seek him all night. Therefore, if a hunter wants to travel at night, or if he wants to be kept awake, he must make himself available to the wind. Therein lies the secret of great hunters, to be available and unavailable at the precise turn of the road. I felt a bit confused, 
and asked him to recapitulate his point. Don Juan very patiently explained that he had used the twilight and the wind to point out the crucial importance of the interplay between hiding and showing oneself. You must learn to become deliberately available and unavailable, he said. As your life goes now, you are unwittingly available at all times. I protested. My feeling was that my life was becoming increasingly more and more secretive. He said that I hadn't understood his point, and that to be unavailable didn't mean to hide or to be secretive, but to be inaccessible. Let me put it another way, he proceeded patiently. It makes no difference to hide if everyone knows that you're hiding. Your problems right now stem from that. When you're hiding, everyone knows that you're hiding, and when you're not, you're available for everyone to take a poke at you. I was beginning to feel threatened and hurriedly tried to defend myself. Don't explain yourself, Don Juan said dryly. There's no need. We're fools, all of us, and you can't be different. At one time in my life, I, like you, made myself available over and over again, until there was nothing of me left for anything except perhaps crying. And that I did, just like yourself. Don Juan sized me up for a moment, and then sighed loudly. I was younger than you, though, he went on. But one day, I had enough, and I changed. Let's say that one day, when I was becoming a hunter, I learned the secret of being available and unavailable. I told him that his point was bypassing me. I truly couldn't understand what he meant by being available. He had used the Spanish idioms ponerse al alcance and ponerse en el medio del camino, to put oneself within reach and to put oneself in the middle of a trafficked way. You must take yourself away, he explained. You must retrieve yourself from the middle of a trafficked way. Your whole being is there. Thus, it's of no use to hide. You would only imagine that you're hidden. Being in the middle of the road means that everyone passing by watches your comings and goings. His metaphor was interesting, but at the same time it was also obscure. You're talking in riddles, I said. He stared at me fixedly for a long moment and then began to hum a tune. I straightened my back and sat attentively. I knew that when Don Juan hummed a Mexican tune... He was about to clobber me. Hey, he said, smiling, and peered at me. Whatever happened to your blonde friend, that girl you used to really like? I must have looked at him like a confounded idiot. He laughed with great delight. I didn't know what to say. You told me about her, he said reassuringly but I didn't remember ever telling him about anybody, much less about a blonde girl. I've never mentioned anything like that to you, I said. Of course you have, he said, as if dismissing the argument. I wanted to protest, 
but he stopped me, saying that it didn't matter how he knew about her, that the important issue was that I had liked her. I sensed a surge of animosity towards him building up within myself. Don't stall, Don Juan said dryly. This is a time when you should cut off your feelings of importance. You once had a woman, a very dear woman, and then one day you lost her. I began to wonder if I had ever talked about her to Don Juan. I concluded that there had never been an opportunity, yet I might have. Every time he drove with me, we had always talked incessantly about everything. I didn't remember everything we had talked about because I couldn't take notes while driving. I felt somehow appeased by my conclusions. I told him that he was right. There had been a very important blonde girl in my life. Why isn't she with you? he asked. She left. Why? There were many reasons. There were not so many reasons. There was only one. You made yourself too available. I earnestly wanted to know what he meant. He again had touched me. He seemed to be cognizant of the effect of his touch and puckered up his lips to hide a mischievous smile. Everyone knew about you two he said with unshaken conviction. Was it wrong? It was deadly wrong. She was a fine person. I expressed the sincere feeling that his fishing in the dark was odious to me, especially the fact that he always made his statements with the assurance of someone who had been at the scene and had seen it all. But that's true, he said with a disarming candor. I have seen it all. She was a fine person. I knew that it was meaningless to argue, but I was angry with him for touching that sore spot in my life, and I said that the girl in question was not such a fine person after all, that in my opinion she was rather weak. So were you, he said calmly. But that's not important. What counts is that you've looked for her everywhere. That makes her a special person in your world. And for a special person, one should have only fine words. I felt embarrassed. A great sadness had begun to engulf me. What are you doing to me, Don Juan? I asked. You always succeed in making me sad. Why? You're now indulging in sentimentality, he said accusingly. What's the point of all this, Don Juan? Being inaccessible is the point, he declared. I brought up the memory of this person only as a means to show you directly what I couldn't show you with the wind. You lost her because you were accessible. You were always within her reach, and your life was a routine one. No, I said. You're wrong. My life was never a routine. It was, and it is a routine he said dogmatically. It is an unusual routine, and that gives you the impression that it's not a routine, but I assure you, it is. I wanted to sulk and get lost in moroseness, but somehow his eyes made me feel restless. They seemed to push me on and on. The art of a hunter is to become inaccessible, he said. In the case of that blonde girl, it would have meant that you had to become a hunter and meet her sparingly. Not the way you did. You stayed with her day after day, until the only feeling that remained was boredom. True? I didn't answer. I felt I didn't have to. 
he was right. To be inaccessible means that you touch the world around you sparingly. You don't eat five quail. You eat one. You don't damage the plants just to make a barbecue pit. You don't expose yourself to the power of the wind unless it is mandatory. You don't use and squeeze people until they have shriveled to nothing, especially the people you love. I have never used anyone, I said sincerely. But Don Juan maintained that I had, and thus I could bluntly state that I became tired and bored with people. To be unavailable means that you deliberately avoid exhausting yourself and others, he continued. It means that you're not hungry and desperate, like the poor bastard that feels he'll never eat again and devours all the food he can, all five quail. Don Juan was definitely hitting me below the belt. I laughed, and that seemed to please him. He touched my back lightly. A hunter knows he will lure game into his traps over and over again, so he doesn't worry. To worry is to become accessible, unwittingly accessible. And once you worry, you cling to anything out of desperation. And once you cling, you are bound to get exhausted, or to exhaust whoever or whatever you're clinging to. I told him that in my day-to-day -day life it was inconceivable to be inaccessible. My point was that, in order to function, I had to be within reach of everyone that had something to do with me. I've told you already that to be inaccessible doesn't mean to hide or to be secretive, he said calmly. It doesn't mean that you can't deal with people, either. A hunter uses his world sparingly and with tenderness, regardless of whether the world might be things or plants or animal or people or power. A hunter deals intimately with his world, and yet he is inaccessible to that same world. That's a contradiction, I said. He can't be inaccessible if he is there in his world hour after hour, day after day. You didn't understand, Don Juan said patiently. He is inaccessible because he's not squeezing his world out of shape. He taps it lightly, stays for as long as he needs to, and then swiftly moves away, leaving hardly a mark. 8. Disrupting the Routines of Life Sunday, July 16th, 1961. We spent all morning watching some rodents that looked like fat squirrels. Don Juan called them water rats. He pointed out that they were very fast and getting out of danger. But after they had outrun any predator, they had the terrible habit of stopping or even climbing a rock to stand on their hind legs to look around and groom themselves. They have very good eyes, Don Juan said. You must move only when they are on the run. Therefore, you must learn to predict when and where they'll stop, so you would also stop at the same time. 
I became engrossed in observing them, and I had what would have been a field day for hunters, as I spotted so many of them. And finally, I could predict their movements almost every time. Don Juan then showed me how to make traps to catch them. He explained that a hunter had to take time to observe their eating or their nesting places in order to determine where to locate his traps. He would then set them during the night, and all he had to do the next day was to scare them off so they would scatter away into his catching devices. We gathered some sticks and proceeded to build the hunting contraptions. I had mine almost finished and was excitedly wondering whether or not it would work, when suddenly Don Juan stopped and looked at his left wrist, as if he were checking a watch which he had never had, and said that according to his timepiece it was lunchtime. I was holding a long stick which I was trying to make into a hoop by bending it in a circle. I automatically put it down with the rest of my hunting paraphernalia. Don Juan looked at me with an expression of curiosity. Then he made the wailing sound of a factory siren at lunchtime. I laughed. His siren sound was perfect. I walked toward him and noticed that he was staring at me. He shook his head from side to side. I'll be damned, he said. What's wrong? I asked. He again made the long wailing sound of a factory whistle. Lunch is over, he said. Go back to work. I felt confused for an instant, but then I had thought that he was joking, perhaps because we really had nothing to make lunch with. I had been so engrossed with the rodents that I had forgotten we had no provisions. I picked up the stick again and tried to bend it. After a moment, Don Juan again blew his whistle. Time to go home, he said. He examined his imaginary watch and then looked at me and winked. It's five o'clock, he said with an air of someone revealing a secret. I thought that he had suddenly become fed up with hunting and was calling the whole thing off. I simply put everything down and began to get ready to leave. I didn't look at him. I presumed that he also was preparing his gear. When I was through, I looked up and saw him sitting cross-legged a few feet away. I'm through, I said. We can go any time. He got up and climbed a rock. He stood there, five or six feet above the ground, looking at me. He put his hands on either side of his mouth and made a very prolonged and piercing sound. It was like a magnified factory siren. He turned around in a complete circle, making the wailing sound. What are you doing, Don Juan? I asked. He said that he was giving the signal for the whole world to go home. I was completely baffled. I couldn't figure out whether he was joking or whether he had simply flipped his lid. I watched him intently and tried to relate what he was doing to something he may have said before. We'd hardly talked at all during the morning, and I couldn't remember anything of importance. Don Juan was still standing on top of the rock. He looked at me, smiled, and winked again. I suddenly became alarmed. Don Juan put his hands on both sides of his mouth and let out another long whistle-like sound. He said that it was eight o'clock in the morning and that I had to set up my gear again because we had a whole day ahead of us. I was completely confused by then. In a matter of minutes, my fear mounted to an irresistible desire to run away from the scene. I thought Don Juan was crazy. 
I was about to flee when he slid down from the rock and came to me, smiling. You think I'm crazy, don't you? he asked. I told him that he was frightening me out of my wits with his unexpected behavior. He said that we were even. I didn't understand what he meant. I was deeply preoccupied with the thought that his acts seemed thoroughly insane. He explained that he had deliberately tried to scare me out of my wits with the heaviness of his unexpected behavior, because I myself was driving him up the walls with the heaviness of my expected behavior. He added that my routines were as insane as his blowing his whistle. I was shocked and asserted that I didn't really have any routines. I told him that I believed my life was in fact a mess because of my lack of healthy routines. Don Juan laughed and signaled me to sit down by him. The whole situation had mysteriously changed again. My fear had vanished as soon as he had begun to talk. What are my routines? I asked. Everything you do is a routine. Aren't we all that way? Not all of us. I don't do things out of routine. What prompted all this, Don Juan? What did I do, or what did I say that made you act the way you did? You were worrying about lunch. I didn't say anything to you. How did you know that I was worrying about lunch? You worry about eating every day around noontime, and around six in the evening, and around eight in the morning, he said with a malicious grin. You worry about eating at those times, even if you're not hungry. All I had to do to show your routine spirit was to blow my whistle. Your spirit is trained to work with a signal. He stared at me with a question in his eyes. I couldn't defend myself. Now you're getting ready to make hunting into a routine, he went on. You've already set your pace in hunting. You talk at a certain time, eat at a certain time, and fall asleep at a certain time. I had nothing to say. The way Don Juan had described my eating habits was the pattern I used for everything in my life. Yet I strongly felt that my life was less routine than that of most of my friends and acquaintances. You know a great deal about hunting now, Don Juan continued. It'll be easy for you to realize that a good hunter knows one thing above all. He knows the routines of his prey. That's what makes him a good hunter. If you would remember the way I've proceeded in teaching you hunting, you would perhaps understand what I mean. First... I taught you how to make and set up your traps. Then I taught you the routines of the game you were after. And then we tested the traps against their routines. Those parts are the outside forms of hunting. Now I have to teach you the final and by far the most difficult part. Perhaps years will pass before you can say that you understand it and that you're a hunter. Don Juan paused, as if to give me time. He took off his hat and imitated the grooming movements of the rodents we'd been observing. It was very funny to me. His round head made him look like one of those rodents. To be a hunter is not just to trap game, he went on. A hunter that is worth his salt doesn't catch game because he sets his traps or because he knows the routines of his prey. 
but because he himself has no routines. This is his advantage. He's not at all like the animals he's after, fixed by heavy routines and predictable quirks. He's free, fluid, unpredictable. What Don Juan was saying sounded to me like an arbitrary and irrational idealization. I couldn't conceive of a life without routines. I wanted to be very honest with him and not just agree or disagree with him. I felt that what he had in mind wasn't possible to accomplish by me or by anyone. I don't care how you feel, he said. In order to be a hunter, you must disrupt the routines of your life. You have done well in hunting. You've learned quickly, and now you can see that you are like your prey. Easy to predict. I asked him to be specific and give me concrete examples. I am talking about hunting, he said calmly. Therefore, I am concerned with the things animals do, the places they eat, the place, the manner, the time they sleep, where they nest, how they walk. These are the routines I am pointing out to you, so you can become aware of them in your own being. You've observed the habits of animals in the desert. They eat and drink at certain places. They nest at specific spots. They leave their tracks in specific ways. In fact, everything they do can be foreseen or reconstructed by a good hunter. As I told you before, in my eyes, you behave like your prey. Once in my life, someone pointed out the same thing to me, so you're not unique in that. All of us behave like the prey that we're after. That, of course, also makes us prey for something or someone else. Now, the concern of a hunter who knows all this is to stop being a prey himself. Do you see what I mean? I again expressed the opinion that his proposition was unattainable. It takes time, Don Juan said. You could begin by not eating lunch every single day at twelve o'clock. He looked at me and smiled benevolently. His expression was very funny and made me laugh. There are certain animals, however, that are impossible to track, he went on. There are certain types of deer, for instance, which a fortunate hunter might be able to come across by sheer luck once in his lifetime. Don Juan paused dramatically and looked at me piercingly. He seemed to be waiting for a question, but I didn't have any. What do you think makes them so difficult to find and so unique? He asked. I shrugged my shoulders because I didn't know what to say. They have... No routines, he said in a tone of revelation. That's what makes them magical. A deer has to sleep at night, I said. Isn't that a routine? Certainly, if the deer sleeps every night at a specific time and in one specific place. But those magical beings don't behave like that. In fact, someday you may verify this for yourself. Perhaps it'll be your fate to chase one of them. For the rest of your life. What do you mean by that? You like hunting? Perhaps someday in some place in the world your path may cross the path of a magical being, and you might go after it. A magical being is a sight to behold. I was fortunate enough to cross paths with one. 
Our encounter took place after I had learned and practiced a great deal of hunting. Once I was in a forest of thick trees in the mountains of central Mexico, when suddenly I heard a sweet whistle. It was unknown to me. Never in all my years of roaming in the wilderness had I heard such a sound. I couldn't place it in the terrain. It seemed to come from different places. I thought that perhaps I was surrounded by a herd or a pack of some unknown animals. I heard the tantalizing whistle once more. It seemed to come from everywhere. I realized then my good fortune. I knew it was a magical being, a deer. I also knew that a magical deer is aware of the routines of ordinary men and the routines of hunters. It's very easy to figure out what an average man would do in a situation like that. First of all, his fear would immediately turn him into a prey. Once he becomes a prey, he has two courses of action left. He either flees or he makes his stand. If he's not armed, he would ordinarily flee into the open field to run for his life. If he is armed, he would get his weapon ready and would then make his stand either by freezing on the spot or by dropping to the ground. A hunter, on the other hand, when he stalks in the wilderness, would never walk into any place without figuring out his points of protection. Therefore, he would immediately take cover. He might drop his poncho on the ground, or he might hang it from a branch as a decoy, and then he would hide and wait until the game makes its next move. So, in the presence of the magical deer, I didn't behave like either. I quickly stood on my head and began to wail softly. I actually wept tears and sobbed for such a long time that I was about to faint. Suddenly, I felt a soft breeze. Something was sniffing my hair behind my right ear. I tried to turn my head to see what it was, and I tumbled down and sat up in time to see a radiant creature staring at me. The deer looked at me, and I told him I wouldn't harm him. And the deer talked to me. Don Juan stopped and looked at me. I smiled involuntarily. The idea of a talking deer was quite incredible, to put it mildly. He talked to me, Don Juan said with a grin. The deer talked? He did. Don Juan stood and picked up his bundle of hunting paraphernalia. Did it really talk? I asked in a tone of perplexity. Don Juan roared with laughter. What did it say? I asked, half in jest. I thought he was pulling my leg. Don Juan was quiet for a moment, as if he were trying to remember. Then his eyes brightened as he told me what the deer had said. The magical deer said, Hello, friend, Don Juan went on. And I answered, Hello. Then he asked me, Why are you crying? And I said, Because I'm sad. Then the magical creature came to my ear and said as clearly as I am speaking now, Don't be sad. Don Juan stared into my eyes. 
he had a glint of sheer mischievousness. He began to laugh uproariously. I said that his dialogue with the deer had been sort of dumb. What did you expect? he asked, still laughing. I'm an Indian. His sense of humor was so outlandish that all I could do was laugh with him. You don't believe that a magical deer talks, do you? I'm sorry, but I just can't believe things like that can happen, I said. I don't blame you, he said reassuringly. It's one of the darndest things. 9. The Last Battle on Earth Monday, July 24, 1961 Around mid-afternoon, after we had roamed for hours in the desert, Don Juan chose a place to rest in a shaded area. As soon as we sat down, he began talking. He said that I had learned a great deal about hunting, but I had not changed as much as he had wished. It's not enough to know how to make and set up traps, he said. A hunter must live as a hunter in order to draw the most out of his life. Unfortunately, changes are difficult and happen very slowly. Sometimes it takes years for a man to become convinced of the need to change. It took me years, but maybe I didn't have a knack for hunting. I think for me, the most difficult thing was to really want to change. I assured him that I understood his point. In fact, since he had begun to teach me how to hunt, I also had begun to reassess my actions. Perhaps the most dramatic discovery for me was that I liked Don Juan's ways. I liked Don Juan as a person. There was something solid about his behavior. The way he conducted himself left no doubts about his mastery, and yet he had never exercised his advantage to demand anything from me. His interest in changing my way of life, I felt, was akin to an impersonal suggestion, or perhaps it was akin to an authoritative commentary on my failures. He had made me very aware of my failings, yet I couldn't see how his ways would remedy anything in me. I sincerely believed that in light of what I wanted to do in my life, his ways would have brought me misery and hardship. Hence the impasse. However, I had learned to respect his mastery, which had always been expressed in terms of beauty and precision. I have decided to shift my tactics, he said. I asked him to explain. His statement was vague, and I wasn't sure whether or not he was referring to me. A good hunter changes his ways as often as he needs, he replied. You know that yourself. What do you have in mind, Don Juan? A hunter must not only know about the habits of his prey, he also must know that there are powers on this earth that guide men and animals and everything that is living. He stopped talking. I waited, but he seemed to have come to the end of what he wanted to say. What kind of powers are you talking about? I asked after a long pause. Powers that guide our lives and our deaths. Don Juan stopped talking and seemed to be having tremendous difficulty in deciding what to say. 
He rubbed his hands and shook his head, puffing out his jaws. Twice he signaled me to be quiet as I started to ask him to explain his cryptic statements. You won't be able to stop yourself easily, he finally said. I know that you're stubborn, but that doesn't matter. The more stubborn you are, the better it'll be when you finally succeed in changing yourself. I'm trying my best, I said. No, I disagree. You're not trying your best. You just said that because it sounds good to you. In fact, you've been saying the same thing about everything you do. You've been trying your best for years, to no avail. Something must be done to remedy that. I felt compelled, as usual, to defend myself. Don Juan seemed to aim, as a rule, at my very weakest points. I remembered then that every time I had attempted to defend myself against his criticisms, I had ended up feeling like a fool, and I stopped myself in the midst of a long explanatory speech. Don Juan examined me with curiosity and laughed. He said in a very kind tone that he had already told me that all of us were fools. I was not an exception. You always feel compelled to explain your acts as if you are the only man on earth who's wrong, he said. It's your old feeling of importance. You have too much of it. You also have too much personal history. On the other hand, you don't assume responsibility for your acts. You're not using your death as an advisor. And above all, you're too accessible. In other words, your life is as messy as it was before I met you. Again, I had a genuine surge of pride and wanted to argue that he was wrong. He gestured for me to be quiet. One must assume responsibility for being in a weird world, he said. We are in a weird world, you know. I nodded my head affirmatively. We're not talking about the same thing he said. For you, the world is weird because if you're not bored with it, you're at odds with it. For me, the world is weird because it is stupendous, awesome, mysterious, unfathomable. My interest has been to convince you that you must assume responsibility for being here in this marvelous world, in this marvelous desert, in this marvelous time. I wanted to convince you that you must learn to make every act count, since you're going to be here for only a short while. In fact, too short for witnessing all the marvels of it. I insisted that to be bored with the world, or to be at odds with it, was the human condition. So, change it, he replied dryly. If you don't respond to that challenge, you're as good as dead. He dared me to name an issue, an item in my life, that had engaged all my thoughts. I said, art. I'd always wanted to be an artist, and for years I'd tried my hand at that. I still had the painful memory of my failure. You have never taken the responsibility for being in this unfathomable world, he said in an indicting tone. Therefore, you were never an artist, and perhaps you'll never be a hunter. This is my best, Don Juan. No, you don't know what your best is, 
I'm doing all I can. You're wrong again. You can do better. There is one simple thing wrong with you. You think you have plenty of time. He paused and looked at me as if waiting for my reaction. You think you have plenty of time, he repeated. Plenty of time for what, Don Juan? You think your life is going to last forever. No, I don't. Then, if you don't think your life is going to last forever, what are you waiting for? Why the hesitation to change? Has it ever occurred to you, Don Juan, that I may not want to change? Yes, it has occurred to me. I didn't want to change either, just like you. However, I didn't like my life. I was tired of it, just like you. Now, I don't have enough of it. I vehemently asserted that his insistence about changing my way of life was frightening and arbitrary. I said that I really agreed with him at a certain level, but the mere fact that he was always the master that called the shots made the situation untenable for me. You don't have time for this display, you fool, he said in a severe tone. This, whatever you're doing now, may be your last act on earth. It may very well be your last battle. There is no power which could guarantee that you are going to live one more minute. I know that, I said with contained anger. No, you don't. If you knew that, you would be a hunter. I contended that I was aware of my impending death, but it was useless to talk or think about it, since I couldn't do anything to avoid it. Don Juan laughed and said I was like a comedian going mechanically through a routine. If this were your last battle on earth, I would say that you're an idiot, he said calmly. You're wasting your last act on earth in some stupid mood. We were quiet for a moment. My thoughts ran rampant. He was right, of course. You have no time, my friend, no time. None of us have time, he said. I agree, Don Juan, but don't just agree with me, he snapped. You must, instead of agreeing so easily, act upon it. Take the challenge. Change. Just like that? That's right. The change I'm talking about never takes place by degrees. It happens suddenly, and you're not preparing yourself for that sudden act that will bring a total change. I believed he was expressing a contradiction. I explained to him that if I were preparing myself to change, I was certainly changing by degrees. You haven't changed at all, he said. That's why you believe you're changing little by little. Yet perhaps you will surprise yourself someday by changing suddenly and without a single warning. I know this is so, and thus I don't lose sight of my interest in convincing you. I couldn't persist in my arguing. I wasn't sure of what I really wanted to say. After a moment's pause, Don Juan went on explaining his point. Perhaps I should put it in a different way, he said. What I recommend you to do is to notice that we don't have any assurance that our lives will go on indefinitely. I've just said that change comes suddenly and unexpectedly, 
and so does death. What do you think we can do about it? I thought he was asking a rhetorical question, but he made a gesture with his eyebrows, urging me to answer. To live as happily as possible, I said. Right. But do you know anyone who lives happily? My first impulse was to say yes. I thought I could use a number of people I knew as examples. On second thought, however, I knew my effort would only be an empty attempt at exonerating myself. No, I said. I really don't. I do, Don Juan said. There are some people who are very careful about the nature of their acts. Their happiness is to act with the full knowledge that they don't have time. Therefore, their acts have a peculiar power. Their acts have a sense of... Don Juan seemed to be at a loss for words. He scratched his temples and smiled. Then, suddenly, he stood up, as if he were through with our conversation. I beseeched him to finish what he was telling me. He sat down and puckered up his lips. Acts have power, he said, especially when the person acting knows that those acts are his last battle. There's a strange, consuming happiness in acting with the full knowledge that whatever one is doing may very well be one's last act on earth. I recommend that you reconsider your life and bring your acts into that light. I disagreed with him. Happiness, for me, was to assume that there was an inherent continuity to my acts and that I would be able to continue doing at will whatever I was doing at the moment, especially if I was enjoying it. I told him that my disagreement was not a banal one, but stemmed from the conviction that the world and myself had a determinable continuity. Don Juan seemed to be amused by my efforts to make sense. He laughed, shook his head, scratched his hair, and finally, when I talked about a determinable continuity, threw his hat to the ground and stomped on it. I ended up laughing at his clowning. You don't have time, my friend, he said. That's the misfortune of human beings. None of us have sufficient time, and your continuity has no meaning in this awesome, mysterious world. Your continuity only makes you timid, he said. Your acts cannot possibly have the flair, the power. The compelling force of the acts performed by a man who knows that he is fighting his last battle on earth. In other words, your continuity doesn't make you happy or powerful. I admitted that I was afraid of thinking I was going to die, and accused him of causing great apprehension in me with his constant talk and concern about death. But we are all going to die he said. He pointed toward some hills in the distance. There is something out there waiting for me, for sure, and I will join it 
also, for sure. But perhaps you are different, and death is not waiting for you at all. He laughed at my gesture of despair. I don't want to think about it, Don Juan. Why not? It's meaningless. If it's out there waiting for me, why should I worry about it? I didn't say that you have to worry about it. What am I supposed to do, then? Use it. Focus your attention on the link between you and your death, without remorse or sadness or worrying. Focus your attention on the fact you don't have time, and let your acts flow accordingly. Let each of your acts be your last battle on earth. Only under those conditions will your acts have their rightful power. Otherwise, they'll be, for as long as you live, the acts of a timid man. Is it so terrible to be a timid man? No, it isn't, if you're going to be immortal. But if you're going to die, there's no time for timidity. Simply because timidity makes you cling to something that exists only in your thoughts. It soothes you, while everything is at a lull. But then, the awesome, mysterious world will open its mouth for you, as it will open for every one of us, and then you'll realize that your sure ways were not sure at all. Being timid prevents us from examining and exploiting our lot as men. It's not natural to live with the constant idea of our death, Don Juan. Our death is waiting, and this very act we're performing now may well be our last battle on earth, he replied in a solemn voice. I call it a battle because it is a struggle. Most people move from act to act without any struggle or thought. A hunter, on the contrary assesses every act, and since he has an intimate knowledge of his death, he proceeds judiciously, as if every act were his last battle. Only a fool would fail to notice the advantage a hunter has over his fellow men. A hunter gives his last battle its due respect. It's only natural that his last act on earth should be the best of himself. It's pleasurable that way. It dulls the edge of his fright. You're right, I conceded. It's just hard to accept. It'll take years for you to convince yourself, and then it'll take years for you to act accordingly. I only hope you have time left. I get scared when you say that, I said. Don Juan examined me with a serious expression on his face. I've told you, this is a weird world, he said. The forces that guide men are unpredictable, awesome, yet their splendor is something to witness. He stopped talking and looked at me again. He seemed to be on the verge of revealing something to me, but he checked himself and smiled. Is there something that guides us? I asked. Certainly. There are powers that guide us. Can you describe them? Not really, except to call them forces, spirits, 
airs, winds, or anything like that. I wanted to probe him further, but before I could ask anything else, he stood up. I stared at him, flabbergasted. He'd stood up in one single movement. His body simply jerked up, and he was on his feet. I was still pondering upon the unusual skill that would be needed in order to move with such speed when he told me in a dry tone of command to stalk a rabbit, catch it, kill it, skin it, and roast the meat before the twilight. He looked up at the sky and said that I might have enough time. I automatically started off, proceeding the way I had done scores of times. Don Juan walked beside me and followed my movements with a scrutinizing look. I was very calm and moved carefully, and I had no trouble at all in catching a male rabbit. Now kill it, Don Juan said dryly. I reached into the trap to grab hold of the rabbit. I had it by the ears and was pulling it out when a sudden sensation of terror invaded me. For the first time, since Don Juan had begun to teach me to hunt, it occurred to me that he had never taught me how to kill game. In the scores of times we had roamed in the desert, he himself had only killed one rabbit, two quail, and one rattlesnake. I dropped the rabbit and looked at Don Juan. I can't kill it, I said. Why not? I've never done that. But you've killed hundreds of birds and other animals. With a gun, not with my bare hands. What difference does it make? This rabbit's time is up. Don Juan's tone shocked me. It was so authoritative, so knowledgeable. It left no doubts in my mind that he knew that the rabbit's time was up. Kill it, he commanded with a ferocious look in his eyes. I can't. He yelled at me that the rabbit had to die. He said that its roaming in that beautiful desert had come to an end. I had no business stalling because the power or the spirit that guides rabbits had led that particular one into my trap right at the edge of the twilight. A series of confusing thoughts and feelings overtook me, as if the feelings had been out there waiting for me. I felt with agonizing clarity the rabbit's tragedy to have fallen into my trap. In a matter of seconds, my mind swept across the most crucial moments of my own life, the many times I had been the rabbit myself. I looked at it, and it looked at me. The rabbit had backed up against the side of the cage. It was almost curled up, very quiet and motionless. We exchanged a somber glance, and that glance, which I fancied to be of silent despair, cemented a complete identification on my part. The hell with it, I said loudly. I won't kill anything. That rabbit goes free. A profound emotion made me shiver. My arms trembled as I tried to grab the rabbit by the ears. It moved fast, and I missed. I again tried and fumbled once more. I became desperate. I had the sensation of nausea, and quickly kicked the trap in order to smash it and let the rabbit go free. The cage was unsuspectedly strong and didn't break as I thought it would. My despair mounted to an unbearable feeling of anguish. Using all my strength, I stomped on the edge of the cage with my right foot. The sticks cracked loudly. I pulled the rabbit out. 
I had a moment of relief, which was shattered to bits in the next instant. The rabbit hung limp in my hand. It was dead. I didn't know what to do. I became preoccupied with finding out how it had died. I turned to Don Juan. He was staring at me. A feeling of terror sent a chill through my body. I sat down by some rocks. I had a terrible headache. Don Juan put his hand on my head and whispered in my ear that I had to skin the rabbit and roast it before the twilight was over. I felt nauseated. He very patiently talked to me as if he were talking to a child. He said that the powers that guided men or animals had led that particular rabbit to me, in the same way they'll lead me to my own death. He said the rabbit's death had been a gift for me, in exactly the same way my own death will be a gift for something or someone else. I was dizzy. The simple events of that day had crushed me. I tried to think that it was only a rabbit. I couldn't, however, shake off the uncanny identification I had had with it. Don Juan said that I needed to eat some of its meat, if only a morsel in order to validate my finding. I can't do that, I protested meekly. We are dregs in the hands of those forces, he snapped at me. So stop your self-importance and use this gift properly. I picked up the rabbit. It was warm. Don Juan leaned over and whispered in my ear, your trap was his last battle on earth. I told you, he had no more time to roam in this marvelous desert. 10. Becoming Accessible to Power Thursday, August 17, 1961 As soon as I got out of my car, I complained to Don Juan that I wasn't feeling well. Sit down, sit down, he said softly, and almost led me by the hand to his porch. He smiled and patted me on the back. Two weeks before, on August 4th, Don Juan, as he had said, changed his tactics with me and allowed me to ingest some peyote buttons. During the height of my hallucinatory experience, I played with a dog that lived in the house where the peyote session took place. Don Juan interpreted my interaction with the dog as a very special event. He contended that at moments of power, such as the one I had been living then, the world of ordinary affairs didn't exist, and nothing could be taken for granted, that the dog was not really a dog, but the incarnation of Mescalito, the power of the deity contained in peyote. The post-effects of that experience were a general sense of fatigue and melancholy, plus the incidence of exceptionally vivid dreams and nightmares. "'Where's your writing gear?' Don Juan asked as I sat down on the porch. I had left my notebooks in my car. Don Juan walked back to the car and carefully pulled out my briefcase and brought it to my side. He asked if I usually carried my briefcase when I walked. I said I did. "'That's madness,' he said. I've told you never to carry anything in your hands when you walk. Get a knapsack. I laughed. 
The idea of carrying my notes in a knapsack was ludicrous. I told him that ordinarily I wore a suit, and a knapsack over a three-piece suit would be a preposterous sight. Put your coat on over the knapsack, he said. It's better that people think you're a hunchback than to ruin your body carrying all this around. He urged me to get out my notebook and write. He seemed to be making a deliberate effort to put me at ease. I complained again about the feeling of physical discomfort and the strange sense of unhappiness I was experiencing. Don Juan laughed and said, You're beginning to learn. We then had a long conversation. He said that Mescalito, by allowing me to play with him, had pointed me out as a chosen man, and that, although he was baffled by the omen because I was not an Indian, he was going to pass on to me some secret knowledge. He said that he had had a benefactor himself who taught him how to become a man of knowledge. I sensed that something dreadful was about to happen. The revelation that I was his chosen man, plus the unquestionable strangeness of his ways and the devastating effect that peyote had had on me, created a state of unbearable apprehension and indecision. But Don Juan disregarded my feelings and recommended that I should only think of the wonder of Mescalito playing with me. Think about nothing else, he said. The rest will come to you of itself. He stood up and patted me gently on the head and said in a very soft voice, I am going to teach you how to become a warrior in the same manner I've taught you how to hunt. I must warn you, though. Learning how to hunt has not made you into a hunter, nor would learning how to become a warrior make you one. I experienced a sense of frustration, a physical discomfort that bordered on anguish. I complained about the vivid dreams and nightmares I was having. He seemed to deliberate for a moment and sat down again. They're weird dreams, I said. You've always had weird dreams, he retorted. I'm telling you, this time they're truly more weird than anything I've ever had. Don't concern yourself. They're only dreams. Like the dreams of any ordinary dreamer, they don't have power. So what's the use of worrying about them or talking about them? They bother me, Don Juan. Isn't there something I can do to stop them? Nothing. Let them pass, he said. Now it's time for you to become accessible to power, and you're going to begin by tackling dreaming. The tone of voice he used when he said dreaming made me think that he was using the word in a very particular fashion. I was pondering about a proper question to ask when he began to talk again. I've never told you about dreaming, because until now I was only concerned with teaching you how to be a hunter, he said. A hunter is not concerned with the manipulation of power. Therefore, his dreams are only dreams. They might be poignant, but they are not dreaming. A warrior, on the other hand, seeks power, and one of the avenues to power is dreaming. You may say that the difference between a hunter and a warrior is that a warrior is on his way to power, 
while a hunter knows nothing or very little about it. The decision as to who can be a warrior and who can only be a hunter is not up to us. That decision is in the realm of the powers that guide men. That's why your playing with Mescalito was such an important omen. Those forces guided you to me. They took you to that bus depot, remember? Some clown brought you to me. A perfect omen, a clown pointing you out. So I taught you how to be a hunter. And then the other perfect omen, Mescalito himself, playing with you. See what I mean? His weird logic was overwhelming. His words created visions of myself succumbing to something awesome and unknown, something which I hadn't bargained for, and which I had not conceived existed, even in my wildest fantasies. What do you propose I should do? I asked. Become accessible to power. Tackle your dreams, he replied. You call them dreams because you have no power. A warrior, being a man who seeks power, doesn't call them dreams. He calls them real. You mean he takes his dreams as being reality? He doesn't take anything as being anything else. What you call dreams are real for a warrior. You must understand that a warrior is not a fool. A warrior is an immaculate hunter who hunts power. He's not drunk or crazed, and he has neither the time nor the disposition to bluff or to lie to himself or to make a wrong move. The stakes are too high for that. The stakes are his trimmed, orderly life, which he's taken so long to tighten and perfect. He's not going to throw that away by making some stupid miscalculation, by taking something for being something else. Dreaming is real for a warrior, because in it he can act deliberately. He can choose and reject. He can select from a variety of items those which lead to power. And then he can manipulate them and use them, while in an ordinary dream he cannot act deliberately. Do you mean then, Don Juan, that dreaming is real? Of course it's real. As real as what we're doing now. If you want to compare things, I can say that it's perhaps more real. In dreaming, you have power. You can change things. You may find out countless concealed facts. You can control whatever you want. Don Juan's premises always had appealed to me at a certain level. I could easily understand his liking the idea that one could do anything in dreams, but I couldn't take him seriously. The jump was too great. We looked at each other for a moment. His statements were insane, and yet he was, to the best of my knowledge, one of the most level-headed men I had ever met. I told him that I couldn't believe he took his dreams to be reality. He chuckled, as if he knew the magnitude of my untenable position. Then he stood up without saying a word and walked inside his house. I sat for a long time in a state of stupor until he called me to the back of his house. He'd made some corn gruel and handed me a bowl. I asked him about the time when one was awake. 
I wanted to know if he called it anything in particular. But he didn't understand or didn't want to answer. What do you call this? What we're doing now? I asked, meaning that what we were doing was reality as opposed to dreams. I call it eating, he said, and contained his laughter. I call it reality, I said, because our eating is actually taking place. Dreaming also takes place, he replied, giggling. And so does hunting, walking, laughing. I didn't persist in arguing. I couldn't, however, even if I stretched myself beyond my limits, accept his premise. He seemed to be delighted with my despair. As soon as we had finished eating, he casually stated that we were going to go for a hike, but we weren't going to roam in the desert in the manner we had done before. It's different this time, he said. From now on, we're going to places of power. You're going to learn how to make yourself accessible to power. I again expressed my turmoil. I said I wasn't qualified for that endeavor. Come on, you're indulging in silly fears, he said in a low voice, patting me on the back and smiling benevolently. I've been catering to your hunter's spirit. You like to roam with me in this beautiful desert. It's too late for you to quit. He began to walk into the desert chaparral. He signaled me with his head to follow him. I could have walked to my car and left, except that I liked to roam in that beautiful desert with him. I liked the sensation, which I experienced only in his company, that this was indeed an awesome, mysterious, yet beautiful world. As he said, I was hooked. Don Juan led me to the hills towards the east. It was a long hike. It was a hot day. The heat, however, which ordinarily would have been unbearable to me, was somehow unnoticeable. We walked for quite a distance into a canyon until Don Juan came to a halt and sat down in the shade of some boulders. I took some crackers out of my knapsack, but he told me not to bother with them. He said that I should sit in a prominent place. He pointed to a single, almost round, boulder ten or fifteen feet away, and helped me climb to the top. I thought he was also going to sit there, but instead he just climbed part of the way in order to hand me some pieces of dry meat. He told me with a deadly serious expression that it was power meat and should be chewed very slowly and should not be mixed with any other food. He then walked back to the shaded area and sat down with his back against a rock. He seemed relaxed, almost sleepy. He remained in the same position until I had finished eating. Then he sat up straight and tilted his head to the right. He seemed to be listening attentively. He glanced at me two or three times, stood up abruptly, and began to scan the surroundings with his eyes the way a hunter would do. I automatically froze on the spot and only moved my eyes in order to follow his movements. Very carefully... He stepped behind some rocks, as if he were expecting game to come into the area where we were. I realized then that we were in a round, cove-like bend in the dry water canyon, surrounded by sandstone boulders. Don Juan suddenly came out from behind the rocks 
and smiled at me. He stretched his arms, yawned, and walked towards the boulder where I was. I relaxed my tense position and sat down. What happened? I asked in a whisper. He answered me, yelling that there was nothing around there to worry about. I felt an immediate jolt in my stomach. His answer was inappropriate, and it was inconceivable to me that he would yell unless he had a specific reason for it. I began to slide down from the boulder, but he yelled that I should stay there a while longer. What are you doing? I asked. He sat down and concealed himself between two rocks at the base of the boulder where I was, and then he said in a very loud voice that he had only been looking around because he thought he had heard something. I asked if he had heard a large animal. He put his hand to his ear and yelled that he was unable to hear me and that I should shout my words. I felt ill at ease yelling, but he urged me in a loud voice to speak up. I shouted that I wanted to know what was going on, and he shouted back that there was really nothing around there. He yelled, asking if I could see anything unusual from the top of the boulder. I said no and he asked me to describe to him the terrain towards the south. We shouted back and forth for a while, and then he signaled me to come down. I joined him, and he whispered in my ear that the yelling was necessary to make our presence known, because I had to make myself accessible to the power of that specific waterhole. I looked around, but couldn't see the waterhole. He pointed that we were standing on it. There's water here, he said in a whisper, and also power. There's a spirit here, and we have to lure it out. Perhaps it'll come after you. I wanted to know more about the alleged spirit, but he insisted on total silence. He advised me to stay perfectly still and not let out a whisper or make the slightest movement to betray our presence. Apparently, it was easy for him to remain in complete immobility for hours— for me, however, it was sheer torture. My legs fell asleep, my back ached, and tension built up around my neck and shoulders. My entire body became numb and cold. I was in great discomfort when Don Juan finally stood up. He just sprung to his feet and extended his hand to me to help me stand up. As I was trying to stretch my legs, I realized the inconceivable easiness with which Don Juan had jumped up after hours of immobility. It took quite some time for my muscles to regain the elasticity needed for walking. Don Juan headed back for the house. He walked extremely slowly. He set up a length of three paces as the distance I should observe in following him. He meandered around the regular route and crossed it four or five times in different directions. When we finally arrived at his house, it was late afternoon. I tried to question him about the events of the day. He explained that talking was unnecessary. For the time being, I had to refrain from asking questions until we were in a place of power. I was dying to know what he meant by that, and tried to whisper a question, but he reminded me with a cold, severe look that he meant business. We sat on the porch for hours. I worked on my notes. From time to time, he handed me a piece of dry meat. Finally, it was too dark to write. 
I tried to think about the new developments, but some part of myself refused to, and I fell asleep. Saturday, August 19, 1961 Yesterday morning, Don Juan and I drove to town and ate breakfast at a restaurant. He advised me not to change my eating habits too drastically. Your body's not used to power meat, he said. You'd get sick if you didn't eat your food. He himself ate heartily. When I joked about it, he simply said, My body likes everything. Around noon, we hiked back to the water canyon. We proceeded to make ourselves noticeable to the spirit by noisy talk and by a forced silence, which lasted hours. When we left the place, instead of heading back to the house, Don Juan took off in the direction of the mountains. We reached some mild slopes first, and then we climbed to the top of some high hills. There Don Juan picked out a spot to rest in the open, unshaded area. He told me that we had to wait until dusk and that I should conduct myself in the most natural fashion, which included asking all the questions I wanted. I know that the spirit is out there lurking, he said in a very low voice. Where? Out there, in the bushes. What kind of spirit is it? He looked at me with a quizzical expression and retorted, How many kinds are there? We both laughed. I was asking questions out of nervousness. It'll come out at dusk, he said. We just have to wait. I remained quiet. I had run out of questions. This is the time when we must keep on talking, he said. The human voice attracts spirits. There's one lurking out there now. We're making ourselves available to it, so keep on talking. I experienced an idiotic sense of vacuity. I couldn't think of anything to say. He laughed and patted me on the back. You're truly a pill he said. When you have to talk, you lose your tongue. Come on, beat your gums. He made a hilarious gesture of beating his gums together, opening and closing his mouth with great speed. There's certain things we'll talk about from now on only at places of power, he went on. I've brought you here because this is your first trial. This is a place of power, and here we can talk only about power. I really don't know what power is, I said. Power is something a warrior deals with, he said. At first it's an incredible, far-fetched affair. It's hard to even think about it. This is what's happening to you now. Then power becomes a serious matter. One may not have it, or one may not even fully realize that it exists. Yet one knows that something is there, something which was not noticeable before. Next, power is manifested as something uncontrollable that comes to oneself. It's not possible for me to say how it comes or what it really is. It is nothing, and yet it makes marvels appear before your very eyes. And finally, power is something in oneself, something that controls one's acts and yet obeys one's command. There was a short pause. Don Juan asked me if I had understood. I felt ludicrous saying I did. He seemed to have noticed my dismay and chuckled. 
I am going to teach you right here the first step to power, he said, as if he were dictating a letter to me. I am going to teach you how to set up dreaming. He looked at me and again asked me if I knew what he meant. I did not. I was hardly following him at all. He explained that to set up dreaming meant to have a concise and pragmatic control over the general situation of a dream, comparable to the control one has over any choice in the desert, such as climbing up a hill or remaining in the shade of a water canyon. You must start by doing something very simple, he said. Tonight, in your dreams, you must look at your hands. I laughed out loud. His tone was so factual that it was as if he were telling me to do something commonplace. Why do you laugh? he asked with surprise. How can I look at my hands in my dreams? Very simple. Focus your eyes on them, just like this. He bent his head forward and stared at his hands with his mouth open. His gesture was so comical that I had to laugh. Seriously, how can you expect me to do that? I asked. The way I've told you, he snapped. You can, of course, look at whatever you goddamn please, your toes or your belly or your pecker for that matter. I said your hands because that's the easiest thing for me to look at. Don't think it's a joke. Dreaming is as serious as seeing or dying or any other thing in this awesome, mysterious world. Think of it as something entertaining. Imagine all the inconceivable things you could accomplish. A man hunting for power has almost no limits in his dreaming. I asked him to give me some pointers. There aren't any pointers, he said. Just look at your hands. There must be more that you could tell me, I insisted. He shook his head and squinted his eyes, staring at me in short glances. Every one of us is different, he finally said. What you call pointers would only be what I myself did when I was learning. We are not the same. We aren't even vaguely alike. Maybe anything you'd say would help me. It would be simpler for you just to start looking at your hands. He seemed to be organizing his thoughts and bobbed his head up and down. Every time you look at anything in your dreams, it changes shape, he said after a long silence. The trick in learning to set up dreaming is obviously not just to look at things, but to sustain the sight of them. Dreaming is real. When one has succeeded in bringing everything into focus, then there is no difference between what you do when you sleep and what you do when you are not sleeping. Do you see what I mean? I confessed that although I understood what he had said, I was incapable of accepting his premise. I brought up the point that in a civilized world there were scores of people who had delusions and could not distinguish what took place in the real world from what took place in their fantasies. I said that such persons were undoubtedly mentally ill, 
and my uneasiness increased every time he would recommend I should act like a crazy man. After my long explanation, Don Juan made a comical gesture of despair by putting his hands to his cheeks and sighing loudly. Leave your civilized world alone, he said. Let it be. Nobody is asking you to behave like a madman. I've already told you, a warrior has to be perfect in order to deal with the powers he hunts. How can you conceive that a warrior would not be able to tell things apart? On the other hand, you, my friend, who know what the real world is, would fumble and die in no time at all if you would have to depend on your ability for telling what is real and what is not. I, obviously, had not expressed what I really had in mind. Every time I protested, I was simply voicing the unbearable frustration of being in an untenable position. I'm not trying to make you into a sick, crazy man, Don Juan went on. You can do that yourself without my help. But the forces that guide us brought you to me and I have been endeavoring to teach you to change your stupid ways and live the strong, clean life of a hunter. Then the forces guided you again and told me that you should learn to live the impeccable life of a warrior. Apparently, you can't. But who can tell? We are as mysterious and as awesome as this unfathomable world. So who can tell what you're capable of? There was an underlying tone of sadness in Don Juan's voice. I wanted to apologize, but he began to talk again. You don't have to look at your hands, he said. Like I've said, pick anything at all. But pick one thing in advance and find it in your dreams. I said your hands because they'll always be there. When they begin to change shape, you must move your sight away from them and pick something else, and then look at your hands again. It takes a long time to perfect this technique. I had become so involved in writing that I hadn't noticed that it was getting dark. The sun had already disappeared over the horizon. The sky was cloudy, and the twilight was imminent. Don Juan stood up and gave furtive glances towards the south. Let's go, he said. We must walk south until the spirit of the waterhole shows itself. We walked for perhaps half an hour. The terrain changed abruptly, and we came to a barren area. There was a large round hill where the chaparral had burnt. It looked like a bald head. We walked towards it. I thought that Don Juan was going to climb the mild slope, but he stopped instead and remained in a very attentive position. His body seemed to have tensed as a single unit and shivered for an instant. Then he relaxed again and stood limply. I couldn't figure out how his body could remain erect while his muscles were so relaxed. At that moment, a very strong gust of wind jolted me. Don Juan's body turned in the direction of the wind towards the west. He didn't use his muscles to turn, or at least he didn't use them the way I would use mine to turn. Don Juan's body seemed rather to have been pulled from the outside, it was as if someone else had arranged his body to face a new direction. I kept on staring at him. He looked at me from the corner of his eye. The expression on his face was one of determination, purpose. 
All of his being was attentive, and I stared at him in wonder. I had never been in any situation that called for such a strange concentration. Suddenly his body shivered as though he had been splashed by a sudden shower of cold water. He had another jolt, and then he started to walk as if nothing had happened. I followed him. We flanked the naked hills on the east side until we were at the middle part of it. He stopped there, turning to face the west. From where we stood, the top of the hill was not so round and smooth as it had seemed to be from the distance. There was a cave, or a hole, near the top. I looked at it fixedly, because Don Juan was doing the same. Another strong gust of wind sent a chill up my spine. Don Juan turned towards the south and scanned the area with his eyes. There, he said in a whisper, and pointed to an object on the ground. I strained my eyes to see. There was something on the ground, perhaps twenty feet away. It was light brown, and as I looked at it, it shivered. I focused all my attention on it. The object was almost round and seemed to be curled. In fact, it looked like a curled-up dog. What is it? I whispered to Don Juan. I don't know, he whispered back as he peered at the object. What does it look like to you? I told him that it seemed to be a dog. Too large for a dog, he said matter-of-factly. I took a couple of steps towards it, but Don Juan stopped me gently. I stared at it again. It was definitely some animal that was either asleep or dead. I could almost see its head, its ears protruded like the ears of a wolf. By then I was definitely sure that it was a curled-up animal. I thought that it could have been a brown calf. I whispered that to Don Juan. He answered that it was too compact to be a calf. Besides, its ears were pointed. The animal shivered again, and then I noticed that it was alive. I could actually see that it was breathing, yet it didn't seem to breathe rhythmically. The breaths that it took were more like irregular shivers. I had a sudden realization at that moment. It's an animal that is dying, I whispered to Don Juan. You're right, he whispered back, but what kind of an animal? I couldn't make out its specific features. Don Juan took a couple of cautious steps towards it. I followed him. It was quite dark by then, and we had to take two more steps in order to keep the animal in view. Watch out, Don Juan whispered in my ear. If it's a dying animal, it may leap on us with its last strength. The animal, whatever it was, seemed to be on its last legs. Its breathing was irregular. Its body shook spasmodically, but it didn't change its curled-up position. At a given moment, however, a tremendous spasm actually lifted the animal off the ground. I heard an inhuman shriek, and the animal stretched its legs. Its claws were more than frightening. They were nauseating. The animal tumbled on its side after stretching its legs, and then rolled on its back. I heard a formidable growl, and Don Juan's voice shouting, Run for your life! And that was exactly what I did. I scrambled towards the top of the hill with unbelievable speed and agility. When I was halfway to the top, I looked back and saw Don Juan standing in the same place. He signaled me to come down. I ran down the hill. What happened? 
I asked, completely out of breath. I think the animal is dead, he said. We advanced cautiously towards the animal. It was sprawled on its back. As I came closer to it, I nearly yelled with fright. I realized that it was not quite dead yet. Its body was still trembling. Its legs, which were sticking up in the air, shook wildly. The animal was definitely in its last gasps. I walked in front of Don Juan. A new jolt moved the animal's body, and I could see its head. I turned to Don Juan, horrified. Judging by its body, the animal was obviously a mammal. Yet it had a beak, like a bird. I stared at it in complete and absolute horror. My mind refused to believe it. I was dumbfounded. I couldn't even articulate a word. Never in my whole existence had I witnessed anything of that nature. Something inconceivable was there, in front of my very eyes. I wanted Don Juan to explain that incredible animal, but I could only mumble to him. He was staring at me. I glanced at him and glanced at the animal, and then something in me arranged the world, and I knew at once what the animal was. I walked over to it and picked it up. It was a large branch of a bush. It had been burnt, and possibly the wind had blown some burnt debris which got caught in the dry branch and thus gave the appearance of a large, bulging, round animal. The color of the burnt debris made it look light brown in contrast with the green vegetation. I laughed at my idiocy and excitedly explained to Don Juan that the wind blowing through it had made it look like a live animal. I thought he would be pleased with the way I had resolved the mystery, but he turned around and began walking to the top of the hill. I followed him. He crawled inside the depression that looked like a cave. It wasn't a hole, but a shallow dent in the sandstone. Don Juan took some small branches and used them to scoop up the dirt that had accumulated in the bottom of the depression. We have to get rid of the ticks, he said. He signaled me to sit down and told me to make myself comfortable because we were going to spend the night there. I began to talk about the branch, but he hushed me up. What you've done is no triumph, he said. You've wasted a beautiful power, a power that blew life into that dry twig. He said that a real triumph would have been for me to let go and follow the power until the world had ceased to exist. He didn't seem to be angry with me or disappointed with my performance. He repeatedly stated that this was only the beginning, that it took time to handle power. He patted me on the shoulder and joked that earlier that day I was the person who knew what was real and what was not. I felt embarrassed. I began to apologize for my tendency of always being so sure of my ways. It doesn't matter, he said. That branch was a real animal, and it was alive at the moment the power touched it. Since what kept it alive was power... The trick was, like in dreaming, to sustain the sight of it. See what I mean? I wanted to ask something else, but he hushed me up and said that I should remain completely silent but awake all night, and that he alone was going to talk for a while. He said 
that the spirit, which knew his voice, might become subdued with the sound of it and leave us alone. He explained that the idea of making oneself accessible to power had serious overtones. Power was a devastating force that could easily lead to one's death and had to be treated with great care. Becoming available to power had to be done systematically, but always with great caution. It involved making one's presence obvious by a contained display of loud talk or any other type of noisy activity, and then it was mandatory to observe a prolonged and total silence. A controlled outburst and a controlled quietness were the mark of a warrior. He said that properly I should have sustained the sight of the live monster for a while longer. In a controlled fashion, without losing my mind or becoming deranged with excitation or fear, I should have striven to stop the world. He pointed out that after I had run up the hill for dear life, I was in a perfect state for stopping the world. Combined in that state were fear, awe, power, and death. He said that such a state would be pretty hard to repeat. I whispered in his ear, What do you mean by stopping the world? He gave me a ferocious look before he answered that it was a technique practiced by those who were hunting for power, a technique by virtue of which the world as we know it was made to collapse. 11. The Mood of a Warrior I drove up to Don Juan's house on Thursday, August 31st, 1961, and before I even had a chance to greet him, he stuck his head through the window of my car, smiled at me, and said, We must drive quite a distance to a place of power, and it's almost noon. He opened the door of my car, sat down next to me in the front seat, and directed me to drive south for about 70 miles. We then turned east onto a dirt road and followed it until we had reached the slopes of the mountains. I parked my car off the road in a depression Don Juan picked because it was deep enough to hide the car from view. From there, we went directly to the top of the low hills, crossing a vast, flat, desolate area. When it got dark, Don Juan selected a place to sleep. He demanded complete silence. The next day, we ate frugally and continued our journey in an easterly direction. The vegetation was no longer desert shrubbery, but thick green mountain bushes and trees. Around mid-afternoon, we climbed to the top of a gigantic bluff of conglomerate rock, which looked like a wall. Don Juan sat down and signaled me to sit down also. This is a place of power, he said after a moment's pause. This is the place where warriors were buried a long time ago. At that instant, a crow flew right above us, cawing. Don Juan followed its flight with a fixed gaze. I examined the rock and was wondering how and where the warriors had been buried when he tapped me on the shoulder. Not here, you fool, he said, smiling. Down there. He pointed to the field right below us at the bottom of the bluff, towards the east. He explained that the field in question was surrounded by a natural corral of boulders. From where I was sitting I saw an area which was perhaps a hundred yards in diameter and which looked like a perfect circle. 
Thick bushes covered its surface, camouflaging the boulders. I wouldn't have noticed its perfect roundness if Don Juan hadn't pointed it out to me. He said that there were scores of such places scattered in the old world of the Indians. They weren't exactly places of power, like certain hills or land formations which were the abode of spirits, but rather places of enlightenment where one could be taught, where one could find solutions to dilemmas. All you have to do is come here, he said, or spend the night on this rock in order to rearrange your feelings. Are we going to spend the night here? I thought so, but a little crow just told me not to do that. I tried to find out more about the crow, but he hushed me up with an impatient movement of his hand. Look at that circle of boulders, he said. Fix it in your memory, and then someday a crow will lead you to another one of these places. The more perfect its roundness is, the greater its power. Are the warrior's bones still buried here? Don Juan made a comical gesture of puzzlement and then smiled broadly. This isn't a cemetery, he said. Nobody is buried here. I said warriors were once buried here. I meant they used to come here to bury themselves for a night, or for two days, or for whatever length of time they needed to. I didn't mean dead people's bones are buried here. I'm not concerned with cemeteries. There's no power in them. There is power in the bones of a warrior, though, but they are never in cemeteries. And there's even more power in the bones of a man of knowledge, yet it would be practically impossible to find them. Who is a man of knowledge, Don Juan? Any warrior could become a man of knowledge. As I told you, a warrior is an impeccable hunter that hunts power. If he succeeds in his hunting, he can be a man of knowledge. What do you... He stopped my question with a movement of his hand. He stood up, signaled me to follow, and began descending on the steep east side of the bluff. There was a definite trail in the almost perpendicular face leading to the round area. We slowly worked our way down the perilous path, and when we reached the bottom floor, Don Juan, without stopping at all, led me through the thick chaparral to the middle of the circle. There he used some thick, dry branches to sweep a clean spot for us to sit. The spot was also perfectly round. I intended to bury you here all night, he said. But I know now that it's not time yet. You don't have power. I'm going to bury you only for a short while. I became very nervous with the idea of being enclosed and asked how he was planning to bury me. He giggled like a child and began collecting dry branches. He didn't let me help him and said I should sit down and wait. He threw the branches he was collecting inside the clean circle. Then he made me lie down with my head towards the east, put my jacket under my head, and made a cage around my body. He constructed it by sticking pieces of branches about two and a half feet in length in the soft dirt. The branches, which ended in forks, served as supports for some long sticks that gave the cage a frame and the appearance of an open coffin. He closed the box-like cage by placing small branches and leaves over the long sticks, encasing me from the shoulders down.
he let my head stick out with my jacket as a pillow. He then took a thick piece of dry wood, and using it as a digging stick, he loosened the dirt around me and covered the cage with it. The frame was so solid and the leaves were so well placed that no dirt came inside. I could move my legs freely and could actually slide in and out. Don Juan said that ordinarily a warrior would construct the cage and then slip into it and seal it from the inside. How about the animals? I asked. Can they scratch the surface dirt and sneak into the cage and hurt the man? No. That's not a worry for a warrior. It's a worry for you, because you have no power. A warrior, on the other hand, is guided by his unbending purpose and can fend off anything. No rat or snake or mountain lion could bother him. What did they bury themselves for, Don Juan? For enlightenment and for power. I experienced an extremely pleasant feeling of peace and satisfaction. The world at that moment seemed at ease. The quietness was exquisite and at the same time unnerving. I wasn't accustomed to that kind of silence. I tried to talk, but he hushed me. After a while, the tranquility of the place affected my mood. I began to think of my life and my personal history and experienced a familiar sensation of sadness and remorse. I told him that I didn't deserve to be there, that his world was strong and fair and I was weak and that my spirit had been distorted by the circumstances of my life. He laughed and threatened to cover my head with dirt if I kept on talking in that vein. He said that I was a man, and like any man, I deserved everything that was a man's lot, joy, pain, sadness, and struggle, and that the nature of one's acts was unimportant as long as one acted as a warrior. Lowering his voice to almost a whisper, he said, that if I really felt that my spirit was distorted, I should simply fix it, purge it, make it perfect, because there was no other task in our entire lives which was more worthwhile. Not to fix the spirit was to seek death, and that was the same as to seek nothing, since death was going to overtake us regardless of anything. He paused for a long time, and then he said with a tone of profound conviction, to seek the perfection of the warrior's spirit is the only task worthy of our manhood. His words acted as a catalyst. I felt the weight of my past actions as an unbearable and hindering load. I admitted that there was no hope for me. I began to weep, talking about my life. I said that I had been roaming for such a long time that I'd become callous to pain and sadness except on certain occasions when I would realize my aloneness and my helplessness. He didn't say anything. He grabbed me by the armpits and pulled me out of the cage. I sat up when he let go of me. He also sat down. An uneasy silence set in between us. I thought he was giving me time to compose myself. I took my notebook and scribbled out of nervousness. You feel like a leaf at the mercy of the wind, don't you? He finally said, staring at me. That was exactly the way I felt. He seemed to empathize with me. He said that my mood reminded him of a song and began to sing in a low tone. His singing voice was very pleasing, and the lyrics carried me away.
I'm so far away from the sky where I was born. Immense nostalgia invades my thoughts. Now that I'm so alone and sad like a leaf in the wind, sometimes I want to weep, sometimes I want to laugh with longing. ¡Qué lejos estoy del cielo donde he nacido! Inmensa nostalgia invade mi pensamiento. Ahora que estoy tan solo y triste, cual hoja al viento, quisiera llorar, quisiera reír de sentimiento. We didn't speak for a long while. He finally broke the silence. Since the day you were born, one way or another, someone has been doing something to you, he said. That's correct, I said. And they've been doing something to you against your will. True. And by now, you're helpless, like a leaf in the wind. That's correct, that's the way it is. I said that the circumstances of my life had sometimes been devastating. He listened attentively, but I couldn't figure out whether he was just being agreeable or genuinely concerned, until I noticed that he was trying to hide a smile. No matter how much you like to feel sorry for yourself, you have to change that, he said in a soft tone. It doesn't jibe with the life of a warrior. He laughed and sang the song again, but contorted the intonation of certain words. The result was a ludicrous lament. He pointed out that the reason I'd liked the song was because in my own life I had done nothing else but find flaws with everything and lament. I couldn't argue with him. He was correct. Yet I believed I had sufficient reasons to justify my feeling of being like a leaf in the wind. The hardest thing in the world is to assume the mood of a warrior, he said. It's of no use to be sad and complain and feel justified in doing so, believing that someone is always doing something to us. Nobody is doing anything to anybody, much less to a warrior. You are here with me because you want to be here. You should have assumed full responsibility by now, so the idea that you're at the mercy of the wind would be inadmissible. He stood up and began to disassemble the cage. He scooped the dirt back to where he had gotten it from and carefully scattered all the sticks in the chaparral. Then he covered the clean circle with debris, leaving the area as if nothing had ever touched it. I commented on his proficiency. He said that a good hunter would know that we'd been there no matter how careful he had been, because the tracks of men could not be completely erased. He sat cross-legged and told me to sit down as comfortably as possible, facing the spot where he had buried me, and stay put until my mood of sadness had dissipated. A warrior buries himself in order to find power, not to weep with self-pity, he said. I attempted to explain, but he made me stop with an impatient movement of his head. He said that he had to pull me out of the cage in a hurry, because my mood was intolerable, and he was afraid that the place would resent my softness and injure me. Self-pity doesn't jibe with power, he said. The mood of a warrior calls for control over himself, and at the same time it calls for abandoning himself. How can that be? I asked. How can he control and abandon himself at the same time? 
It is a difficult technique, he said. He seemed to deliberate whether or not to continue talking. Twice he was on the verge of saying something, but he checked himself and smiled. You're not over your sadness yet, he said. You still feel weak, and there's no point in talking about the mood of a warrior now. Almost an hour went by in complete silence. Then he abruptly asked me if I had succeeded in learning the dreaming techniques he had taught me. I had been practicing assiduously, and had been able, after a monumental effort, to obtain a degree of control over my dreams. Don Juan was very right in saying that one could interpret the exercises as being entertainment. For the first time in my life, I'd been looking forward to going to sleep. I gave him a detailed report of my progress. It had been relatively easy for me to learn to sustain the image of my hands after I had learned to command myself to look at them. My visions, although not always of my own hands, would last a seemingly long time until I would finally lose control and would become immersed in ordinary, unpredictable dreams. I had no volition whatsoever over when I would give myself the command to look at my hands or to look at other items of the dreams. It would just happen. At any given moment, I would remember that I had to look at my hands and then at the surroundings. There were nights, however, when I couldn't recall having done it at all. He seemed to be satisfied and wanted to know what were the usual items I'd been finding in my visions. I couldn't think of anything in particular and started elaborating on a nightmarish dream I had had the night before. Don't get so fancy he said dryly. I told him that I had been recording all the details of my dreams. Since I'd begun to practice looking at my hands, my dreams had become very compelling, and my sense of recall had increased to the point that I could remember minute details. He said that to follow them was a waste of time, because details and vividness were in no way important. Ordinary dreams get very vivid as soon as you begin to set up dreaming he said. That vividness and clarity is a formidable barrier, and you are worse off than anyone I've ever met in my life. You have the worst mania. You write down everything you can. In all fairness, I believed what I was doing was appropriate. Keeping a meticulous record of my dreams was giving me a degree of clarity about the nature of the visions I had while sleeping. Drop it, he said imperatively. It's not helping anything. All you're doing is distracting yourself from the purpose of dreaming, which is control and power. He lay down and covered his eyes with his hat and talked without looking at me. I'm going to remind you of all the techniques you must practice, he said. First, you must focus your gaze on your hands as the starting point. Then, shift your gaze to other items and look at them in brief glances. Focus your gaze on as many things as you can. Remember that if you only glance briefly, the images don't shift. Then go back to your hands. Every time you look at your hands, you renew the power needed for dreaming. So in the beginning, don't look at too many things. Four items will suffice every time. Later on, you may enlarge the scope until you can cover all you want. But as soon as the images begin to shift and you feel you're losing control, go back to your hands. 
When you feel you can gaze at things indefinitely, you'll be ready for a new technique. I'm going to teach you this new technique now, but I expect you to put it to use only when you're ready. He was quiet for about fifteen minutes. Finally, he sat up and looked at me. The next step in setting up dreaming is to learn to travel, he said. The same way you've learned to look at your hands, you can will yourself to move, to go places. First, you have to establish a place you want to go to. Pick a well-known spot, perhaps your school or a park, a friend's house. Then, will yourself to go there. This technique is very difficult. You must perform two tasks. You must will yourself to go to the specific locale. And then, when you have mastered that technique, you have to learn to control the exact time of your traveling. As I wrote down his statements, I had the feeling that I was really nuts. I was actually taking down insane instructions, knocking myself out in order to follow them. I experienced a surge of remorse and embarrassment. What are you doing to me, Don Juan? I asked, not really meaning it. He seemed surprised. He stared at me for an instant and then smiled. You've been asking me the same question over and over. I'm not doing anything to you. You are making yourself accessible to power. You're hunting it, and I'm just guiding you. He tilted his head to the side and studied me. He held my chin with one hand and the back of my head with the other, and then moved my head back and forth. The muscles of my neck were very tense, and moving my head reduced the tension. Don Juan looked up to the sky for a moment and seemed to examine something in it. It's time to leave, he said dryly and stood up. We walked in an easterly direction until we came upon a patch of small trees in a valley between two large hills. It was almost 5 p.m. by then. He casually said that we might have to spend the night in that place. He pointed to the trees and said that there was water around there. He tensed his body and began sniffing the air like an animal. I could see the muscles of his stomach contracting in very fast, short spasms as he blew and inhaled through his nose in rapid succession. He urged me to do the same and find out by myself where the water was. I reluctantly tried to imitate him. After five or six minutes of fast breathing, I was dizzy but my nostrils had cleared out in an extraordinary way, and I could actually detect the smell of river willows. I couldn't tell where they were, however. Don Juan told me to rest for a few minutes, and then he started me sniffing again. The second round was more intense. I could actually distinguish a whiff of river willow coming from my right. We headed in that direction and found, a good quarter of a mile away, a swamp-like spot with stagnant water. We walked around it to a slightly higher flat mesa. Above and around the mesa, the chaparral was very thick. This place is crawling with mountain lions and other smaller cats, Don Juan said casually, as if it were a commonplace observation. I ran to his side, and he broke out laughing. Usually I wouldn't come here at all, he said, but the crow pointed out this direction. There must be something special about it. Do we really have to be here, Don Juan? We do. Otherwise, I would avoid this place. 
I'd become extremely nervous. He told me to listen attentively to what he had to say. The only thing one can do in this place is hunt lions, he said. So, I'm going to teach you how to do that. There's a special way of constructing a trap for water rats that live around waterholes. They serve as bait. The sides of the cage are made to collapse, and very sharp spikes are put along the sides. The spikes are hidden when the trap is up, and they don't affect anything unless something falls on the cage, in which case the sides collapse and the spikes pierce whatever hits the trap. I couldn't understand what he meant, but he made a diagram on the ground and showed me that if the side sticks of the cage were placed on pivot-like hollow spots on the frame, the cage would collapse onto either side if something pushed its top. The spikes were pointed sharp slivers of hard wood, which were placed all around the frame and fixed to it. Don Juan said that usually a heavy load of rocks was placed over a net of sticks, which were connected to the cage and hung way above it. When the mountain lion came upon the trap baited with the water rats, it would usually try to break it by pawing it with all its might. Then the slivers would go through its paws, and the cat, in a frenzy, would jump up, unleashing an avalanche of rocks on top of him. Someday you might need to catch a mountain lion, he said. They have special powers. They're terribly smart. The only way to catch them is by fooling them with pain and with the smell of river willows. With astounding speed and skill, he assembled a trap, and after a long wait, he caught three chubby squirrel-like rodents. He told me to pick a handful of willows from the edge of the swamp and made me rub my clothes with them. He did the same. Then, quickly and skillfully, he wove two simple carrying nets out of the reeds, scooped up a large clump of green plants and mud from the swamp, and carried it back to the mesa, where he concealed himself. In the meantime, the squirrel-like rodents had begun to squeak very loudly. Don Juan spoke to me from his hiding place and told me to use the other carrying net, gather a good chunk of mud and plants, and climb to the lower branches of a tree near the trap where the rodents were. Don Juan said that he didn't want to hurt the cat or the rodents, so he was going to hurl the mud at the lion if it came to the trap. He told me to be on the alert and hit the cat with my bundle after he had, in order to scare it away. He recommended I should be extremely careful not to fall out of the tree. His final instructions were to be so still that I would merge with the branches. I couldn't see where Don Juan was. The squealing of the rodents became extremely loud, and finally it was so dark that I could hardly distinguish the general features of the terrain. I heard a sudden and close sound of soft steps and a muffled cat-like exhalation, then a very soft growl, and the squirrel-like rodents ceased to squeak. It was right then that I saw the dark mass of an animal right under the tree where I was. Before I could even be sure that it was a mountain lion, it charged against the trap. But before it reached it, something hit it and made it recoil. I hurled my bundle, as Don Juan had told me to do. I missed, yet it made a very loud noise. At that instant, Don Juan let out a series of penetrating yells that sent chills through my spine, and the cat, with extraordinary agility, 
leaped to the mesa, and disappeared. Don Juan kept on making the penetrating noises a while longer, and then he told me to come down from the tree, pick up the cage with the squirrels, run up to the mesa, and get to where he was as fast as I could. In an incredibly short period of time, I was standing next to Don Juan. He told me to imitate his yelling as close as possible in order to keep the lion off while he dismantled the cage and let the rodents free. I began to yell but couldn't produce the same effect. My voice was raspy because of the excitation. He said I had to abandon myself and yell with real feeling because the lion was still around. Suddenly, I fully realized the situation. The lion was real. I let out a magnificent series of piercing yells. Don Juan roared with laughter. He let me yell for a moment, and then he said we had to leave the place as quietly as possible because the lion was no fool and was probably retracing its steps back to where we were. He'll follow us for sure, he said. No matter how careful we are, we'll leave a trail as wide as the Pan-American Highway. I walked very close to Don Juan. From time to time, he would stop for an instant and listen. At one moment, he began to run in the dark, and I followed him with my hands extended in front of my eyes to protect myself from the branches. We finally got to the base of the bluff where we'd been earlier. Don Juan said that if we succeeded in climbing to the top without being mauled by the lion, we were safe. He went up first to show me the way. We started to climb in the dark. I didn't know how, but I followed him with dead sure steps. When we were near the top, I heard a peculiar animal cry. It was almost like the mooing of a cow, except that it was a bit longer and coarser. Up! Up! Don Juan yelled. I scrambled to the top in total darkness ahead of Don Juan. When he reached the flat top of the bluff, I was already sitting, catching my breath. He rolled on the ground. I thought for a second that the exertion had been too great for him, but he was laughing at my speedy climb. We sat in complete silence for a couple of hours, and then we started back to my car. Sunday, September 3rd, 1961 Don Juan was not in the house when I woke up. I worked over my notes and had time to get some firewood from the surrounding chaparral before he returned. I was eating when he walked into the house. He began to laugh at what he called my routine of eating at noon, but he helped himself to my sandwiches. I told him that what had happened with the mountain lion was baffling to me. In retrospect, it all seemed unreal. It was as if everything had been staged for my benefit— the succession of events had been so rapid that I really had not had time to be afraid. I had had enough time to act, but not to deliberate upon my circumstances. In writing my notes, the question of whether I had really seen the mountain lion came to mind. The dry branch was still fresh in my memory. It was a mountain lion, Don Juan said imperatively. Was it a real flesh-and-blood animal? Of course. I told him that my suspicions had been roused because of the easiness of the total event. It was as if the lion had been waiting out there and had been trained to do exactly what Don Juan had planned. He was unruffled by my barrage of skeptical remarks. He laughed at me. 
You're a funny fellow, he said. You saw and heard the cat. It was right under the tree where you were. He didn't smell you and jump at you because of the river willows. They kill any other smell, even for cats. You had a batch of them in your lap. I said that it wasn't that I doubted him, but that everything that had happened that night was extremely foreign to the events of my everyday life. For a while, as I was writing my notes, I even had had the feeling that Don Juan may have been playing the role of the lion. However, I had to discard the idea because I'd really seen the dark shape of a four-legged animal charging at the cage and then leaping to the mesa. Why do you make such a fuss? he said. It was just a big cat. There must be thousands of cats in those mountains. Big deal. As usual, you're focusing your attention on the wrong item. It makes no difference whatsoever whether it was a lion or my pants. Your feelings at that moment were what counted. In my entire life, I'd never seen or heard a big wild cat on the prowl. When I thought of it, I couldn't get over the fact that I'd been only a few feet away from one. Don Juan listened patiently while I went over the entire experience. Why the awe for the big cat? he asked with an inquisitive expression. You've been close to most of the animals that live around here, and you've never been so awed by them. Do you like cats? No, I don't. Well, forget about it, then. The lesson wasn't on how to hunt lions, anyway. What was it about? The little crow pointed out that specific spot to me, and at that spot I saw the opportunity of making you understand how one acts while one is in the mood of a warrior. Everything you did last night was done within a proper mood. You were controlled and at the same time abandoned when you jumped down from the tree to pick up the cage and run up to me. You weren't paralyzed with fear. And then, near the top of the bluff, when the lion let out a scream... You moved very well. I'm sure you wouldn't believe what you did if you looked at the bluff during the daytime. You had a degree of abandon, and at the same time, you had a degree of control over yourself. You didn't let go and wet your pants, and yet you let go and climbed that wall in complete darkness. You could have missed the trail and killed yourself. To climb that wall in darkness required that you had to hold on to yourself and let go of yourself at the same time. That's what I call the mood of a warrior. I said that whatever I'd done that night was the product of my fear, and not the result of any mood of control and abandon. I know that, he said, smiling, and I wanted to show you that you can spur yourself beyond your limits if you're in the proper mood. A warrior makes his own mood. You didn't know that. Fear got you into the mood of a warrior. But now that you know about it, anything can serve to get you into it. I wanted to argue with him. But my reasons weren't clear. I felt an inexplicable sense of annoyance. It's convenient to always act in such a mood, he continued. It cuts through the crap and leaves one purified. It was a great feeling when you reached the top of the bluff, wasn't it? I told him that I understood what he meant, yet I felt it would be idiotic to try to apply what he was teaching me to everyday life.
One needs the mood of a warrior for every single act, he said. Otherwise, one becomes distorted and ugly. There's no power in a life that lacks this mood. Look at yourself. Everything offends and upsets you. You whine and complain and feel that everyone is making you dance to their tune. You're a leaf at the mercy of the wind. There's no power in your life. What an ugly feeling that must be. A warrior, on the other hand, is a hunter. He calculates everything. That's control. But once his calculations are over, he acts, he lets go. That's abandon. A warrior is not a leaf at the mercy of the wind. No one can push him. No one can make him do things against himself or against his better judgment. A warrior is tuned to survive, and he survives in the best of all possible fashions. I liked his stance, although I thought it was unrealistic. It seemed too simplistic for the complex world in which I lived. He laughed at my arguments and I insisted that the mood of a warrior couldn't possibly help me overcome the feeling of being offended or actually being injured by the actions of my fellow men, as in the hypothetical case of being physically harassed by a cruel and malicious person placed in a position of authority. He roared with laughter and admitted the example was apropos. A warrior could be injured, but not offended, he said. For a warrior, there is nothing offensive about the acts of his fellow men, as long as he himself is acting within the proper mood. The other night, you weren't offended by the lion. The fact that it chased us didn't anger you. I didn't hear you cursing it, nor did I hear you say that he had no right to follow us. It could have been a cruel and malicious lion, for all you know, but that wasn't a consideration when you struggled to avoid it. The only thing that was pertinent was to survive, and that you did very well. If you would have been alone and the lion had caught up with you and mauled you to death, you would have never even considered complaining or feeling offended by its acts. The mood of a warrior is not so far-fetched for yours or anybody's world. You need it in order to cut through all the guff. I explained my way of reasoning. The lion and my fellow men were not on a par, because I knew the intimate quirks of men while I knew nothing about the lion. What offended me about my fellow men was that they acted maliciously and knowingly. I know, I know, Don Juan said patiently. To achieve the mood of a warrior isn't a simple matter. It is a revolution. To regard the lion and the water rats and our fellow men as equals is a magnificent act of the warrior's spirit. It takes power to do that. This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook. So please check your library for the next part of this audiobook. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.